You're listening to Bring Me the Axe. I'm Brian White, one half of this morbid equation. I'm joined by my co-host and actual brother, Dave White. Hey, Dave, how you doing over there? Thank you for asking. Uh, I'm doing pretty well. I'll tell you, I have found a new thing I enjoy, and it is videos of people falling down. <laughs> and I was never really one for these these types of videos, and now I just cannot get enough of them. I, I don't know if it's just the, the way the world these days, but God damn it, I just like a video of someone falling down a hill. <laughs> I I can't fault you for that. It's it's objectively funny. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't yeah. want to see anybody get hurt. Like you know, no, yeah, I don't no, want to no, see no, the aftermath. Hurt, but it's, yeah. it's kind of hilarious. Just a just a nice little slip and yeah, fall. Just a, just a yeah. light tumble. Maybe throw a banana peel down there. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best I got. I, it's been that kind of fucking week. Yeah, no, I I get you. I get you. So hey, 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 Dave. Who's who's this? Who's this over here? Well, you see, we have a guest, but we do not have just any guest. We have us a uh, writer, an actor, director, world-renowned drag performer, and gal about town. Why, it is Peaches Christ. Hi, Peaches. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thrilled to be here. Yeah, this is this is very exciting. We've we've been looking forward to this one for for a little while, and and I'm so glad that you joined us for. For this movie in particular, because man, it's we're gonna, we're gonna have a good time with this one. I am excited. I have to say that Dave's um, uh, hobby is an old time um, uh, passion of mine, uh, and and when you really go down the rabbit hole, you'll find um, Instagram pages like Kids Getting Hurt, <laughs> and and I highly highly recommend you follow Kids Getting Hurt. Or America's Got No Talent. <laughs> I feel um, like I feel like kids getting hurt is something that gets you on like a no fly uh, yeah, list. Yeah. Though. Yeah. I, I, got, I, got, I got in a lot of trouble once on Twitter because I made a joke about one that when I used to work. Remember when I used to work at that fucking pizza and birthday party place and and it was vaguely yes. nothing but children. I I used to take great pleasure. It was a very high pressure job for such low pay and so it's so terrible. And I used to take great great pleasure when a kid would just go running through and trip. Oh man, it just it warms things up for me in a way. I, just, I, I mean, I'll say this: the caveat is they're not seriously yeah, yeah, yeah. hurt. You only you only make it on kids getting hurt on Instagram if you know if it's sort of all ending in laughter. <laughs> that's good. that's good. So there you have it. Peaches Christ, not pro children getting hit by cars. <laughs> Definitely no. pro children falling down though. And yes, that, exactly. That I get falling down. Yeah, safely. Yeah. It's, let's, let's keep it all above board as long as all, everybody's having a good time. Kids falling down. It's a great it's a great time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned for our Kids Falling Down podcast. Yep, coming soon, coming soon to Patreon. Uh, oh, God. Yeah. So, hey, we practically grew up in neighborhood video stores and the steady diet of utter garbage that those shops provided us with continues unabated to this day. There's no one I enjoy chopping it up with more about trashy movies than Dave. And so just before we get into it, here's a little housekeeping. If you want to keep up with us between episodes, you can also find us on Instagram at Bring Me the Axe Pod, and Dave's over there at That Queer Wolf. We've got a sweet website now at bringmetheaxe.com. You can listen to all our past shows there and read the transcripts if that's the sort of thing you're into. And if you don't know, we have another show called 99 Cent Rental, where we cover all manner of video store madness on the weeks that Bring Me the Axe is off. Our latest episode covering John Waters' Polyester is out now. And we'll be back next week with a look at Brian De Palma's rock opera, Phantom of the Paradise. And you can also contact us directly at bringmetheaxpod at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or suggestions. Do let us know if there's a movie that you love and would like to hear us give it the business. 
Now, lastly, if you like what you hear, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on YouTube now. Just search for us by name. Subscribe if you prefer to consume your podcast that way. And you'd be doing us a big favor by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And I got to tell you, I see the number going up, and it really, really warms it warms my heart, and it brightens my day. I love it. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, keep keep doing that. Um, and if you listen on YouTube, do us a favor. Give the uh, give the episode a like and leave a comment. We love hearing from you guys. We're always talking at you on, on Instagram. So, you know, drop us a line. Just want to get that mm-hmm. all out of the way right at the top of the show. Because I'm about to give you a taste of what we're doing tonight. Here's a taste. What would you do if you accidentally discovered the house next door was occupied by something not human? Something horrifying. Something unspeakably evil. No one believes you. Nightmare. Not your mom. They did kill a girl over there. Not your girlfriend. Charlie, is this some sort of a trick to get me back? Not even the police. Look, I know it's crazy. I know that, but look, Lieutenant! It knows that you know. You'll do anything to protect yourself. But it will do anything to protect its secret. This could be the night of your life. Guys, a lot of staccato Ooh. sound there. That is a sharp, <laughs> loud trailer. Yeah, Fright Night is, this is a movie that when I think about 80s horror, this is one of the first titles that comes to mind. And I don't necessarily. It's also quintessentially 80s. It is. Firmly planted right there in the middle of it all, 1985. It's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's a favorite of mine. I I, I, have, I watch it. Fairly frequently, you know. I love this film. I just, I mean, uh, when you threw out some uh, titles uh, uh, for possible collaboration on your show, this was the one I was hoping I would get. And um, oh yeah, yeah. I, I think for all the reasons you say, it's 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 very very eighties. It's uh, very stylish. It's fun. It's it's also scary. You know, it 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 has so uh, many. Qualities that make for a great movie, but in addition to that, it's got sort of this weird underlying queerness, both in terms of its cast and its subject matter that just make it, yeah. you know, just when you look at queer horror, quote unquote, which is kind of a new thing that people started to look at, um, you know, there is a specific mm-hmm. reason that a bunch of us were really drawn to Fright Night, you know, it is a handsome uh, pair of men. <laughs> You know, move in next door to a a very attractive and cute teenager who's dating a lesbian and is best friends with a gay guy. You know, it's it's just a really, you know, queer movie that's just a lot of fun. Not to mention Roddy McDowell. I didn't even, you know. Yeah. 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 It, it's it, it's super. It's some of the the research material that I went I went over while I was doing this is a lot of stuff of like Tom Holland saying, like, this movie is not meant to be campy, but. 
It really <laughs> is. It's like super camping. Yeah, he, you know, he also says that he did the, that all of the queerness is unintentional, and I find that very hard to believe. I find that very Especially, hard to believe too. And we'll, we'll get to a point where I, I'm pretty sure he kind of he shows his hand, but it is it is so explicitly gay at certain points. I mean, it, there's, there's, the undertones are obviously there throughout the whole thing, and it kind of makes me wonder: Does Tom Holland see? queerness as sort of an extension of or as a part of sort of an intrinsic part of the vampire legend in general or is he doing this you know very intentionally because my god you have stacked your cast with gay men and women you have got a scene after scene of just innuendo and i I, just to say, it's sort of like when George Romero says, well, I, you know, I, I cast the best actor. I had no, no intentions when I cast a black man. It's like, sure you didn't. But also you kind of did a little bit too. Like this feels a little bit intentional, not in a bad way. I think it's, I think it's pretty neutral in terms of, of what. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's it, certainly, but. there's certainly no judgment cast in it. And it's not used in, in like a shocking way either. It's just, there is something about, there is, there is an inherent sexuality about vampires. Right. Um, and like, I, there's, a, there's like, not really talking about the Lost Boys, the other sort of eighties vampire movie that comes to mind that is pure sexuality is the hunger, which just puts everything sort of front and center. There's nothing really, well, actually, no. Well, that's because the hunger, they were like, here's the hottest people we could find. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, it's unavoidable, but the, the queerness of it. I, I has got to ha, has to have been a sort of deliberate element to it, regardless of what Holland says. Yeah, it's it's hard to imagine that uh, it was that uh, unintentional when you when you really add it all up. But part of me goes, okay, well maybe you know because there's this sort of part of um, you know you have to look at all the people who worked on the movie, right? It's, of course, Tom Holland is the director mm-hmm. and. You know, the buck stops with them. But really, when you look at something like A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 and you go down the rabbit hole of Mark Patton, you know, having kind of his life and career sort of destroyed by this experience, you know, yeah. and you watch that mm-hmm. movie and you, you you go, well, it's undeniably using queerness, you know, and homophobia as a as sort of a weapon of fear, you know, as far as the teenage boys who were buying tickets to, you know, A Nightmare on Elm Street yeah. Part 2. Um, and yeah. then you find out the director... I believe was really oblivious, but the writer wasn't <laughs> right, and the production right, yeah, designer the wasn't and the casting yeah. director wasn't, you know, so you kind of go like the more I see those interviews with what's his name, Jack, what's his shoulder. shoulder? I'm like, Oh yeah, I could buy that. You're totally, mm-hmm. you were totally oblivious to all this while, <laughs> while shooting, you know, Bob yeah. Shea in a leather outfit, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think well, he seems remorseful too. Like he seems once it was sort of brought to his attention, he seems like he really did kind of feel bad. He did not mean to set out to sort of destroy someone's career right. or make anyone feel bad. And I, you know, I think it, I, I guess I would buy, you know, maybe this is the sum of the parts in terms of Fright Night, in which Tom Holland may have been oblivious and maybe you know he's sort of a non-judgmental guy in general, and so it just didn't occur to him. And now that he sees it, he thinks it's great. But everybody else on this is sort of like. They're, they were yeah, just doing what they do. I don't necessarily buy the the oblivious part of it because he was tight with Roddy McDowell. Yeah. yeah. And but and also, I mean, it, yeah. we go through it again on Child's Play uh, a few a few years mm-hmm. later. So like he was definitely at least, you know, 
queer adjacent. I mean, yeah, he's friends with Roddy McDowell, right? They worked together and probably were friends even beforehand with Class of 1984, which I actually just Mm -hmm. watched for the first time. I'd never seen it. Oh, really? Yeah. It's great. It's wild. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. You know, there's just some of these movies that, you know, you're supposed to have seen and you've never seen them. And the longer you go, you just have never seen it. So finally, uh, uh, Fright Night uh, or yeah, not Fright Night, Night Flight, <laughs> uh, the, the app uh, put Class of 1984 on for this month. So I was like, I'm mm-hmm. going to watch it. And um, yeah. I didn't even realize that Roddy was in it until he showed up. I, I think I remembered but Tom Holland, did he write that movie or he produced that he movie? He wrote okay, that one, so, yeah. He wrote it, and yeah. So with, with uh, you know, Fright Night, it's like, I don't think uh, Amanda nor Stephen Jeffries, I don't think they were out of the closet. So, you know, um, and then you've no. got, you know, handsome Susan Sarandon, Susan Sarandon, Chris Sarandon. Oh, my God, I'm really a mess today. <laughs> this is what drag queens do. We, we change the names of everyone. We make them, you know, all different. But it's sort of like maybe he... Really, and then you're like you say, he goes on to work with Don Mancini in the next big movie he does. Yeah. You know, so yeah. maybe he just was accidentally surrounded by queers. <laughs> under, under, yeah, I'm under their, Tom under their terrible gay spell. Well, yeah, is Tom is Tom Holland queer? <laughs> <It's> true. <laughs> okay, no, no, he's not. I believe he's married. Um, to a yeah, but for a long time, I was under the impression that he was, and I don't, I don't know why. And I, th- I, and I think maybe I was too. just confusing him with Don Mancini. So I mean, uh, that's, right. that's entirely. And I th- I always thought Chris Sarandon was gay, uh, probably because of this. And I, it, it never I never made the connection. Chris Sarandon was yeah. married to Susan Sarandon. I didn't really put that together until, I don't know, 10 years ago <laughs> yeah. or so. But I think because of this movie and because of Dog Day Afternoon, um, in which he also plays, well, I wouldn't say also, but he mm-hmm. plays a yep. queer character in that, in this in this, I think he just comes across as that because he is a very, he's a very handsome man. He's very graceful and kind of elegant in the way he portrays this character. And I think the way yeah. he portrays a lot of characters. And I think it just, to me, you know, especially when I'm seeing this as a younger person, you're looking for anything that looks remotely gay. And it was just like, oh yeah, that guy. Yeah, totally. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. It's just gotta be the vampire thing. Like, have you ever watched uh, the TV show of what we do in the shadows? Yes. Cause there's, cause yes. there's a real, there's an ambiguity of the sort of, of gender and sexuality in that one that, that I think that they're really, they're really clamping onto where it's just like, it's not really, it's not really, it's not really sexuality. It's just sex, you know? So there's, there's the, the, the preference is completely beside the point it's just it's just the sexuality of the vampire as a concept uh, yeah vampires seem to be uh the queerest of the monsters but also also sexually ambiguous or you know poly or pansexual whatever they they, they're just sexual and and horny and they've they've been around for so long that like eventually you're just gonna get bored yeah 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 things they (laughs) they can seduce you right and and thank god because they're the human looking ones (laughs) i i I guess we kind of win out in that we don't get to see the the gill man having sex with (laughs) another or uh, zombies well, that's what ah. one thing I really love about Fright Night is they take the 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 attractive vampire sexual you know uh, uh, trope, and then we still get a monster movie in the third act. Oh, like yeah. I love that in this in this mm-hmm. world, the vampires can become these <laughs> incredibly ridiculous monsters. I mean, 
oh god, Amanda Beers when she turns with that giant, you know, mouth and everything. Oh, the, it's the just, shark mouth. Oh, yeah. it's fabulous, you know. And Stephen Jeffries when he becomes the monster version of Evil Ed. It's just I love that Fright Night gives us both. And you know, I I never really thought about it, but you're right to sort of position it or talk about things like The Hunger and The Lost Boys because god, the 80s were great. Uh, in general for horror. <laughs> but once again, I mean, some of the best vampire movies, wildly different vampire movies, because now I'm thinking about um, Near Dark, another, you know, mm-hmm. 80s vampire oh, yeah. film that's just like each incredible. One a, each one of them's a little different. Yeah. Like a different kind of vibe to it. Like Near Dark is probably my favorite of the 80s vampire movies, just because that's the kind of vampire that I, I, I really like is just this kind of like predatory menace that must be destroyed. And like that one, they're not sexy at all. They're horrible, like creatures. Yeah. Well, you also get that you get the influence too of the uh, growing popularity of the kind of, I guess, punk culture, yep. goth culture. And you see, you, I mean, you, so you see that people are allowed to be, it's not the, um, you know, Bela Lugosi or stuff from the sixties, uh, Christopher Lee, you get this kind of edgy sexiness that you get in the eighties from stuff, you know, the influence of like Susie and the Banshees and sort of that big British punk culture. And you get, uh, you know, in, in, um, who made uh, near dark Penelope Spheres? Oh, Catherine, Catherine Bigelow. Bigelow. Yeah. Nice. But you still used to get that, um, that kind of early LA punk uh, 80s kind of like dirty. Yeah, all that's punk, but a little bit. Yeah, no, it was the, so there's like, I look at it. This is going to sound obnoxious, but I'm, I'm Gen X. I'm, I'm, I'm officially 50 years old, you know? So for me, the eighties were formative. You know, I was bored in the Mm seventies, but I came of age in the Mm eighties. I loved all that music you just mentioned. And, and I think that gritty goth era um, that was was a fusion of punk rock, but also the new romantics and new wave, you know, it all came together and, and created this sort of soup of style that was just so great. But by the time you get to the 90s, I have to say, um, you know, it, it's commodified and you've got stores like Hot Topic and malls and, you know, the, the quintessential goth characters in every movie. And it's kind of this sort of stereotype and kind of boring, you know, um, with the exception mm-hmm. of, you know, maybe yeah. Winona Ryder yeah. showing up in something, you know, it, 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 in the 80s, it still was cool. It was pure. The Lost Boys with all those adamant, you know, kind of um, jackets and looks and the buttons. Oh, God, the, the costuming you know, so in that good. movie is great. Uh, Fabulous. And we actually, uh, we watched, so after we watched uh, this the other night, we also watched uh, Lost Boys. Oh, yeah. Because I wanted to see some, well, actually, we watched the this, and then we watched uh, American Werewolf, and then we watched <laughs> Lost Boys. Because I, what I wanted to see was, what is this sort of trajectory of the, I don't want to say horror comedy, but definitely comedic horror, because there's there's a tone to Fright Night that, I, and I don't think it always works throughout this movie. I, I ended up having a lot of kind of complicated feelings, I guess, this time around. Um, and, and so I think what Fright Night is trying to do is what uh, Lost Boys does very, very well, which balances uh, comedy and horror. And I don't think it works quite so well in this. But what I think is really interesting is you get a kind of goofy version of it yeah. in Fright Night. And then by like seven, what is 87, 87. I think it was Lost Boys, then it's really edgy and it's really cool. And it's, but it, it was just interesting to see their trajectory because I think a lot of what doesn't quite work so well here 
definitely does work there. And I think it all kind of comes back to American Werewolf, which is kind of what they're trying to do. Which is like, they're still cool. American Werewolf is the best of the best, I feel like, um, in my mind. But Lost Boys, I think, is so good. Revisited it recently also. But how funny that we're talking about Tom Holland making this uber gay, you know, um, almost Mm -hmm. borderline silly, but super fun gay vampire movie. And then Joel Schumacher, the silliest gay guy in Hollywood, (laughs) making, you know, a a, a more straight dude version of Fright Night. You know, like... A man man who worked with Halston makes this very, very masculine movie. It's like... (laughs) (laughs) I never... Now I'll never not think about that. Like, Tom Holland made Fright Night and Joel Schumacher made The Lost Boys. Speaking of The Lost Boys, I have to tell you, because you might get a kick out of this, it will be, uh, it's going to happen, I'm sure, before this episode airs, so apologies to the listeners, but this Friday, I'm actually um, doing an event. Oh, yes. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the Yeah, the Red Room Mm -hmm. Orchestra, which is a local music group here in San Francisco, um, is doing the the soundtrack to The Lost Boys, and I'm acting out uh, scenes as Jamie Gertz and also Diane Weiss. <laughs> yes. and um and uh Tim Capello is going to be there playing the saxophone and oh, he of course is, so is the great. sexy saxophone guy and they've got um oh my god what's his name you know Bill and Ted um Alex oh, Winter yeah, Alex is going to yeah. be there as well so it's this total like lost boys you know concert celebration happening on Friday night um, this thought you should know. And of course, Fright Night, which is the topic at hand, um, I have celebrated many, many times at my Midnight Mass event over the years mm-hmm. and um, have actually had two shows with Stephen Jeffries that were almost uh, about 20 years apart. The first oh, wow. one I did with Stephen was about 20 years ago. And then we did another one this past spring where um, I reached out to Stephen and he joined me again. Um, and so Steven, of course, I, I adore because he's, you know, he's evil Ed, but also I just think, you know, I feel like Steven's one of those talented eighties actors who had, didn't get a fair shake, has a similar story like Mark Patton's Mm -hmm. where he couldn't both be gay and be a teen successful young actor in Hollywood. His roommates, just to give you a, 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 a sense of, of the trajectory he's, he was on his roommates when they made heaven help us were Sean Penn and uh, Susan Sarandon's other husband, Tim. What's his name? Tim, uh, Tim Robbins. Oh my God. Tim Robbins, Sean Penn, Stephen Jeffries. They shared an LA apartment together. Um, Stephen Jeffries had this huge career, you know, that he was launching and was a very talented actor. I mean, you can't not, see it when you watch fright night oh, spe- you know? I mean, especially in this oh yeah, he's he is, amazing he a performance that is that is bizarre but also very yeah. moving. oh my god yes and fabulous yeah yeah and unique and and then boom you know he he finds that he's you know not accepted as a queer person and and falls into a lot of drug addiction and mm. ends up doing adult films and you know struggles to stay relevant you know i so i root for those people i just love steven so much oh yeah yeah here hold that thought let's let's do some facts yeah. on this one okay so the year was 1985 so some other movies released in 1985 cemetery of terror by uh, okay. yep, by uh, by uh, bring me the ex favorite Ruben Galindo Jr. Also that yep. year, the Peanut Butter Solution. 
not don't think I, don't. <laughs> I haven't seen that <laughs> we, oh. we did an episode on it on that one. Oh, really it's like, a bizarre it's, canadian it's movie. a canadian children's movie that is horrific oh hilarious <laughs> yep uh, also that year uh evils of the night are you guys familiar with this one no. no. Uh so super low budget piece of garbage. It's got um it's got Julie Newmar in it and it has John Carradine who would be in anything. Mm. Yeah, John Carradine would be in anything. Literally. Isn't <laughs> it is it the way that I, I describe it on Letterboxd is it's like a porno, but they left out all the fucking. Wow. Yeah, it's an unbelievable so it's just piece bad of acting. Unbelievable piece of garbage. It's on <laughs> it's on Tubi. I I sort of recommend it just to see what what uh, it's un- unbelievably weird. Uh, also, Day of the Dead came out that year. Oh, okay. And rounding it out, Silver Bullet. Mm, mm. Watch, listen to our Silver Bullet. Nineteen eighty five, and those are like the most notable horror movies. I uh, know those are just the ones that we haven't mentioned on the show yet. Okay, because I was gonna say like, God, this is the heyday, right? I know eighty four is, uh, I think, Nightmare on Elm Street. And also maybe Poltergeist or maybe Poltergeist, Poltergeist was 82. in 82. 82, but, okay. But Nightmare on Elm Street was 84. Uh, uh, Nightmare 2 came out this year also. This was this was the year that they were kind of the competing horror movies. And I believe this one actually uh, performs it. So as, yep, as we mentioned, the director is a man named Tom Holland. And this is uh, his yeah. first feature director gig. And I dare say, I think it shows a little bit. I think, I think it is. <laughs> wow, t- Dave, you dude, are you are a tough well, critic. I say this. I, I, know, come, I think it's tight as hell. I was going to say for a first director, but, but here's the thing. Yeah, this was he. This was not his first time as a director because he'd done like literally hundreds of TV commercials prior to mm. this. Yeah, uh, before he was even a writer. So he's also an actor. He's also a writer. He'd written a few pictures. Turned out quite well. Like we said, he wrote Class of 1984, which we'll probably cover on 99 Cent Rental at some point. He also wrote Psycho 2, which I watched last night. Mm, I love it. I love Psycho 2. Way better than you're expecting it to be. Yeah, it's so underrated. Although I think it's getting a, um, what do they call that when when something's valued over time? Anyway. Uh, A a reevaluation. Yeah, exactly. So, But it is so good. But I like Psycho 2 from the day it came out. Yeah, you know, as a kid. It's, yeah, I mean, it sounds like it was a horrible experience for pretty much everyone who wasn't Anthony Perkins. <laughs> right. Otherwise, it worked out great for us. <laughs> so, um, so he, uh, Michael Winner, as we mentioned in our in our Sentinel <laughs> episode, uh, was a real piece of garbage, and he he did it. He directed one of Holland's scripts, a movie called Scream for Help, and the way that it came out pissed off Holland so much so badly that he decided that he would direct his next script to see it done right. Uh, and so he takes it to it pretty well. Now, a few years later. Yeah, I am fr- I am firmly anti Michael. Oh Winter. yeah, Michael Winner, two thumbs down. Huge F piece. Of wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So it's official. We all hate Michael Winner. Oh, we are in yep. agreement. Yeah. I will. Whatever you guys think, I'm going to adopt that as a philosophy. <laughs> Careful. You uh, tell me who to hate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so a few years later, he delivers one of the genre's biggest, most enduring hits: Child's Play. Yeah, what year was that? 88. Oh my god, yeah. I remember seeing that in the theater. Like going to see it thinking it was going to be more like a fright night type movie. Nope. You know, be, 
I actually had a I had a conversation about that movie with my therapist a couple hours. <laughs> really, <laughs> it was a lot. Mm-hmm. I'll say this: it was a lot. That first child's play was a lot darker and bleaker than I expected as a as a twelve or thirteen year old going into the cinema. Yeah, she said it. She said it was the movie that she was terrified of it when she saw it on TV, probably as a yeah. child. Um, and and I was like, yeah, I don't I don't think I remember seeing that on TV. At the no, time. no, that was one that we definitely came around to on video because when that one came out, like I wicked wanted to see it, but I didn't even bring it up because mo- what's mo- the age difference between you two? Six years. Six years. Six years. Oh, that's a pretty big difference when you're looking at movies as kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wanted to see that one in the theater so badly, but like, I never even brought it up. Like mom would never have taken taken me to that. But she did take me uh, to we, Monkey, I- Monkey Shines, which is yeah. Oh, did she? Which is similarly. Yeah. That's hilarious. Oh, I was sneaking into all this stuff. Oh, I mean, lucky. You. you know, it was back in the days of, um, sure, I'm going to see such and such a movie. And then, of course, you know, because yeah, back then you could really just buy a ticket and then just, you know, with the multiplexes of the 80s, you could kind of just jump around, especially if you're a kid, you know. Yeah, yeah. No one really cared. Yeah. <laughs> there was no assigned seating or checking, you know, usually it was one usher at the top of a, a long hallway or something, you know, and you could kind of, you know, and that usher was seventeen. Yeah, exactly. Years old. Yeah, <laughs> and knew and knew exactly what you were doing. Yeah. you know. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, Tom Holland. I did not see Fright Night in the theater. I know that that no, was definitely I, something I saw I remember, on video. I remember riding. There was we lived in a we lived in a, little, in a small town when this one came out in, called Marblehead. It's it's down there next to Salem, Massachusetts, and we had a, we had a two screen movie theater. And I remember that this was one of them. I would ride by and fucking look at that poster because it's a very evocative poster. Mm-hmm. The Fright Night poster. The Fright Night poster. Oh, I'm obsessed yeah. with it. Yeah. I think it's I think yeah. it's one of the I mean, obviously 80s poster art, uh, the one sheets, you know, some of them are real works of art. I mean, in my living room to this day, I have my uh Dream Warriors poster framed. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, from from uh, you know, from the w- when I was a kid, and I got the one sheet, you know, from the back of Fangoria magazine. It, it, th- th- this is the height of brilliant artwork, and I would say Fright Night is in my top five. You know, of just yeah. brilliant poster art. So much so, I'll have to send it to you guys. But we did a Peaches Christ T-shirt um, of me. Uh, above the Castro Theater, where I do all my shows, that's and it awesome. Mimics, yeah, and it's it's me as the you know the the cloud vampire. I'll send it to you all, but and maybe you can share it with your listeners. But that's how obsessed I was. We did this all over T-shirt of Peaches as the Fright Night poster art. That's great. Yeah, it's it is iconic. I think it's it's probably I think just not not just my personal top five. I think it is probably one of the best most iconic from like the video store shelves this was one that really jumps out at you because it's so it's whimsical in a weird way but it is also terrifying because it does have that shark mouth yeah. vampire on it and it's it's just it is it is evocative of so many things and i don't i don't know that it really accurately represents the movie but i don't care because it looks oh yeah awesome. yeah and the thing is, is I've, and i've got a note about this way down uh you know towards towards the bottom of the of the, the show run but the that that appliance that they made was like a last minute thing that Holland came up with, where he was like, "It'd be really awesome if she had this thing. Can you guys make it?" And the special effects guys were like, "You're fucking crazy! Like we're almost done with this movie." Yeah, because they had like two days, and left they're like, the "And shooting. we have no money. Like this is this thing." He's like, "Just do it for me." And they did it, and they fucking hated it. And they, I guess, most of them hate it to this day. But it's like one of the most enduring images of the entire movie. 
So I, so wait, who hated it? The actors hated wearing it, or the no, no, filmmakers no, the, the, hated the, the, the look of it? The the effects technicians, the guys who actually made uh. the mouth and put it on Amanda Bierce, like they just they thought it looked like crap. And you know, I mean, like they're they're behind the scenes. They're on the you know they're on the set. They see it like they don't actually see the finished product. But like right, right, when it, right. When they when it came out, like it's I you I see that image more than I see Chris Sarandon. And you know, when, whenever you see references to this movie, like in magazines, oh yeah, and books and stuff, yeah, yeah, it was fabulous. I mean, I, I that was one of the things I loved so much about the the third act of the film was all those those crazy ass wild prosthetics right you know? it's a very yeah. it's a very effects light movie until that third act turn, yeah and then all of a sudden it's awesome yeah so, yeah so here's here's some cast we got we got the star of the show is chris sarandon making his second bring me the axe appearance the first being the sentinel mm-hmm. listen to our sentinel episode uh, it took a lot to get him to play a role in a horror movie since the sentinel left such a bad taste in his mouth to put things mildly. Uh, yeah. I suspect that he and Holland saw eye to eye having both been abused by Michael Winner. And he's awesome. I, I, I Jerry Dandridge is one of my favorite horror movie vampires of all time. Yeah, I can't imagine anyone Nobody else. Nobody else. I could role. not see anybody. He's perfect in this movie. Uh, we also get William Ragsdale, uh, which is uh, uh, Charlie Brewster. And uh, this lands real early in his career. I think this is one of his very first roles, like, period. I think it's his first. You get Herman's head later on. That's all I remember. You know what's weird about this is I constantly confuse him with Zach Galligan. From uh, Mm. Gremlins. From Gremlins. I I agree. They look alike. Very much so. They had a very similar... Maybe and even the kind of the, the, the iconic characters they played in Fright Night and in Gremlins have a similar, like... Uh, you know, can't believe this is happening. Teenage yeah. boy with a girlfriend, you know, yeah, type yeah. vibe going on. It's in also like, America. It's also, yeah, yeah. It's that horror in the suburbs thing. That's got to yes, throw exactly. me a little bit, but yeah. Uh, Ragsdale is still quite active today. He's uh, he had a cameo in Renfield just last year. And like a lot of people figured in these bring me the ax episodes, he did a ton of TV and then uh, not necessarily rounding things out, but just kind of keeping it quick. We got Rowdy McDowell prolific actor of stage and screen known for several roles, including this movie's Peter Vincent, but also as Octavian in Cleopatra. And most importantly, well, for most of us as Cornelius in planet of the apes to say nothing of the, he's, he's also in the the Poseidon Poseidon adventure and my favorite episode of the twilight zone. (laughs) And also the legend of hell house. Uh, But yeah, Yeah. Uh, he he came in to this movie because of the part that he plays in uh, class of 1984. And this is to say nothing of the co-star Stephen Jeffries and Amanda Bierce. They both uh, they had both just done a movie called Fraternity Vacation together, uh, which I've never seen. But uh, Jeffries was a Tony-nominated actor before he even got to Hollywood, uh, where he stayed fairly busy until 1985, uh, 1989, and then he vanishes, reappearing in the 90s under the alias Sam Ritter in a rather prolific career turn toward porn, appearing in movies with titles like Das Butt, Oklahoma, and <laughs> I Dream of Weenie. <laughs> I, oh, wow. I think all of those are fantastic titles. <laughs> yep. I uh, love I Dream of Weenie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought Oklahoma was pretty great, too. You know what? Yeah. They, sound, they sound almost, if it wasn't, if it wasn't porn, porno in nature, they almost sound like... Uh, uh, Troy McClure movies. Oh but, yeah, I was going to say Christopher Guest. <laughs> yeah. I found these on an, uh, these titles on an article called "The Films of Stephen Jeffries from Top to Bottom." 
Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, that's the thing with Steven is like, uh, obviously, and, and, you know, I don't think that he, I don't, I don't think it's that private that he, you know, had a, a pretty uh, severe uh, drug habit. And, um, you know, I think much like Mark Patton, there was sort of this sense, well, at least getting to know him and befriending him, there's this real tragic sense that he was just too ahead of his time mm-hmm. as far as being an actor who was very, very talented, but couldn't hide the, their queerness from, from the yeah. screen. You know, yeah. it was just, they were too weird, too queer, but both very fucking talented. And like Stephen Jeffries, Mark, before he did Nightmare on Elm Street, was on stage on Broadway with Cher, Kathy Bates, yeah. Karen Black, yeah. you know, in Robert Altman's yeah, his, Come his Back role. to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, his role in that is fantastic. He's incredible yeah. in yeah. that yeah. movie. Pre, he's preoperative Karen Black. It's That's amazing. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it sounds, it basically, it sounds like he just fell in with a really shitty agent who was like, oh, well, nerds in these comedies are really hot right now and you're kind of nerdy. So we'll just put you out for all these nerdy roles. And like, some of the stuff that I read about it, like he was really kind of bummed that he kept getting these auditions for movies that like he, he, he auditioned for weird science and the role that Michael Anthony Hall gets. He's in, he's a dork in fraternity vacation. He's, he's supposed to be a nerd in this one, but I feel like his character is really half baked and that yeah. the quality of him doesn't really yeah. come across very clearly. But well, like, he's also. I think that's the case with a lot of storylines in this movie. I think there's a lot of plot threads that they either sort of unceremoniously abandon or introduce with very that's little the thing. context. With this, it seems like he played a much larger role in the movie in earlier drafts of the script. But as the Amy character sort of was introduced, yeah. she wasn't in the like the the first draft of the movie, and so as she was sort of brought in to sort of give you know, Charlie Brewster, some like a, a romantic interest. Like they probably had to cut parts of like the evil Ed story, which is a, well, there you have it. Ladies are ruining. Stuff here's, the thing. here's the thing. I identify with evil Ed more out of anybody else than, you know, than anybody else in the movie. It's, it's really, it's really crazy. So here's some taglines. Mm. Uh, and they're not very good. And there's only a couple of them. <laughs> there are some very good reasons to be afraid of the dark. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And then there's generic. This, yeah. Kind of generic. And then there's this yeah. one. If you love being scared, it'll be the night of your life. Also uh, generic. Okay. Yeah. 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 So this was. I mean, it's no, it's no Satan's no, waiting. <laughs> Satan's yeah. waiting. So uh, this was released in August of '85, like we said, with an estimated budget of around eight million dollars, and it was a surprise hit for Columbia, who just used it to fill up uh, the last spot on their '85 schedule. And it ended up outperforming the movies that they expected to be huge hits, a movie called Silverado, which was a Western, and Perfect, which is the... Yeah, oh, the, yeah. The, uh, John Travolta, John Jamie Travolta, Lee Curtis, Curtis aerobics yeah. movie. Yeah. Yeah, that's the one you get the popular meme of, of Jamie Lee Curtis thrusting her yeah. cross. Yeah. And so while neither of those movies were bombs, uh, but their combined box office gross fell just short of Fright Night's total take. So suck it, horror haters. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it also reviewed very well, even though the review, it, it really yeah, even though did. the reviewers and critics were characteristically shitty and passive, passive aggressive about it. But yeah, like even fucking Roger Ebert liked it. Yeah. I mean, it is a fun 80s vampire romp yeah. with style and it, it just, 
I, I think it delivers. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I, you know, it, you can watch it. To, to, I know Dave has uh, serious criticisms, um, but I, I, I think as the as the cult burn it to the ground. as the cult queen who kind of screens it to this day and and gets to sort of see how it plays, you know, with with an audience now. Um, some of these things don't really stand the test of time and I, and Fright Night really does, you know, like it, it still plays, it's still really entertaining for an audience. Um, the, the, the finale is fabulous. Um, yeah, it's just a great movie. I mean, I love the hunger, but the hunger is a boring. Yeah. You know, the hunger is, the hunger is yeah, great yeah. for a few very key scenes and a couple of performances, but it is a long movie where yeah. not much happens. Yeah. I will say, in my, in my defense, Peaches Christ, <laughs> I will say, from a, a position of pure spectatorship, this is a really fun movie. You know, if you just sit back and watch it, it is a great time. It is campy as hell, despite what Tom Holland says. It's super yeah. fun. But I think once we engage with it more critically, that's when I started to be like, well, there's a lot of stuff here that just doesn't really make a lot of sense. So as long as, you know, you don't give a shit about that, then yeah, yeah it's super fun. It's fun to watch. It's fun to talk about. And it's fun to quote. But it's like once we start, like, you know, one of the reasons we're, we're kind of doing this show is to revisit the stuff we really loved when we were younger. And, and to see what holds up and what doesn't. And when you start to look at it that way, things take on a very different meaning, especially when we look at them now. We're, you know, we're in our 40s at this point. And so things mean a lot, you know, a lot different things now. And it's just, it it's interesting to see what happens when you look at it from that position. And it, it just, it becomes something very different. This, I was, I mean, I think, I still think even from that point of view, it's still it still holds up very well. There's just some stuff where you're like, wait, what? Eh, so, okay. so why don't, why don't you bring up those things? Because I actually think you're probably right. Um, what I've noticed, especially with my own, um, you know, cult movie podcast, we often will reevaluate these things that we loved. And um, we sort of talk about the cringe meter, you know, like, Oh God, how <laughs> racist was it? How misogynistic was it? How, you know, just yeah. how cringy is it? And one thing about Fright Night is it doesn't have a lot of that, thankfully, no, you know, which no, is I nice. Think, I think, and a lot of movies yeah, for the most in 1985. Part. Oh my Ooh, God. Yeah. You're yeah. really yeah. awful. Yeah, you know, yeah. The, yeah, the, the the racism and the misogyny is usually what jumps yeah. out. I think more it's more structurally for me in this uh-huh. in terms of this movie. I mean, the fact that and obviously we know at this point that the Amy character is sort of a, a not a last minute edit, but she's a rewrite. Mm. Um, and and I think that feels very shoehorned in at, at a certain point because it's like you have a whole story built around this kid who becomes sort of obsessed with his neighbor, and then all of a sudden you're like shoving this woman in it as though to be like, yeah, but don't worry, everybody, he has a girlfriend right. too, and it's like okay, easy, uh, yeah. everybody. The character, I mean, the Stephen Jeffries character, the evil Ed character, that's another one where you're like, you, you get to the point, and we'll get, when we get to that point in the movie, the part where he dies, you, or even the part where he is is turned into a vampire, you get this feeling that it is this very tragic yeah. moment, and his death is extremely tragic, and it's this really beautiful moment between uh, Roddy McDowell and the, the evil Ed character, and you don't get much leading up to that. And the thing I thought was really strange is if you watch the the special features on the, the latest release, 
um, a 4K release, they talk a lot about how um, Evil Ed and Charlie are these, they're super great friends. It's like, I never get that. I don't either. They, you can't really. I mean, at best, at best, you think they're just sort of like a little adversarial uh, and just kind of like they kind of annoy each other. And that's about all you get. So it's like, I don't get the feeling that they're friends at all. But throughout these commentaries, they all talk about like, well, he's his only friend. And it's like, what do you mean friend? They, they're <laughs> shitty to each other pretty much the whole yeah. time. Yeah. So it's like stuff like that where you're like, well, wait, wait a minute. Why are you like, this feels like it's supposed to be more important. And yet you've given me nothing up to this point that leads me to believe that it should be. And so it's like just little stuff like that where I'm like, you know, it's, it's not as impactful as it could be. I still think it's a great movie, but you know, in terms of what we're watching, like it, there's a lot of competing things happening too. I think, um, you know, obviously he wants to tell this, vampire story that feels fun and fresh and i think for the most part it is but he's also i think what tom holland is trying to do is defend the relevance of classic horror and classic monsters and to show that in this age of slashers you know especially coming off that first teen cycle where everything is just kind of mindless you know uh, misogyny that these movies still have a place and they still have considerable value and I think he does kind of do that, but it gets muddled with all this other stuff that's happening. And so you have this character, this uh, the Peter Vincent character, the Roddy McDowell, where you know he he should feel more relevant, and that kind of comes across. And the fact that he is a little bit washed up, but you don't really get a lot of that. So he builds all this stuff into the movie that feels like in his original concept it probably was a lot more relevant. And then for either because of, you know, uh, studio notes or because of what, you know, whatever rewrites he had to do, it ends up kind of getting pared down and pared down until eventually you're left with kind of a shell of that original story. And those really powerful moments don't really pop the way they should. And so when I say it feels like he is this, this kind of feels like a, like a first outing for him. I think it's, that's more what I mean is that, the the vision for this movie is not really there the way that something like um, Child's Play, but also something like um, Lost Boys or, you know, like those types of things where it is very clear what they're trying to do. And here you get the feeling that there's a lot of competing ideas and he hadn't he didn't really have the confidence to be like, no, this is the story I'm telling. Let's go. I think that's all fair. I mean, you know, I, I, I definitely think that a lot of these movies that we loved so much, um, interestingly enough, uh, run the gamut of being really good movies <laughs> to really bad movies, but we can oh, yeah. still yeah. love them. And I think Fright Night kind of falls somewhere in between, you know, um, you mm -hmm. know, it, it's like, uh, I don't know. Well, The Lost Boys, I think, is a great example of, or Near Dark. They, those are really good movies, you know. In fact, The Lost Boys is better than I remembered it, right? Like, as an adult, I, I rewatch it, and I'm too. like, holy shit, this is a great movie. Yeah, you know? Dave, you used to talk shit openly on this podcast about that movie. <laughs> I really? always think about that movie, and I think, you know, I don't remember liking that movie. And yet every time I watch it, I'm like, you know, that is a really <laughs> good movie. It is solid from beginning to end, especially when you consider the rest of the shit that fucking uh, Joel Schumacher did. It is amazing it, because it, he yeah. really kind of uh, – I want to root for Joel Schumacher. Because who doesn't want to root for a big queenie mess, you know? <laughs> um, 
uh, but like you know, his Batman movies are like, oof, you know, just you know, uh, when you can, I mean, especially when, the you, franchise. I mean, yeah, you look at something like Batman Returns, and you're like, holy shit, this is amazing! What an, a cool direction they're taking this in, and then, uh oh, you know, Joel Schumacher shows up, but Lost, the Lost Boys. Wow, he really hit a home run with that one, especially more so mm-hmm. now watching it as an adult. You know, yeah. I showed it to my husband is Turkish and um and he had a friend come over who is a movie buff in Turkey. And so I often show I, I show a bunch of titles going, Have you seen this? Have you seen this? Have you seen this? Because they don't certain movies just fall through the void. And he had never seen The Lost Boys. And uh so we sat and watched it a few weeks ago. And oh my god, watching it through someone's you know eyes who'd never seen it before, you know, and um, I loved it even more. And I I do love Fright Night, but I actually fell more in love with the Lost Boys. Yeah, where yeah, that's that's how I felt too. Like every you know, uh, same thing with uh, the other one we watched, American Werewolf. Uh, In my head, I'm always like, this movie just doesn't really do it for me. And then I watch it, I'm like, Jesus Christ, this movie is really really. I think it's so good. I think that movie and and you know. I also like as a kid, I watched an American Werewolf in London. You know, I remember I remember when Michael Jackson's Thriller came out, oh, and yeah. everyone talked about you know the director of Thriller and the the, the special effects guy. And you know, I, I liked an American Werewolf in London. Don't get me wrong, but yeah. I was too young to actually really get that the the sheer genius of that film and, and the quiet yeah. moments. Yeah, and I the, definitely this, did not appreciate uh, it until I was an adult. Because I was a yes. I, I, I mean, it's also tainted by John yeah, Landis. Yeah. He just could have been not a great no, he's person. Not. No, but like I think I to this day I still put the howling above it, but it wasn't until like until yeah. I don't know. Really? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I, I love the howling. I'm a the howling yeah, is the howling your favorite werewolf movie? No, the Wolfman is my favorite. Uh, okay, movie, but but the Classic. Howling is is definitely is definitely a, a top. Like if I had to, if I had to like do a top three, it's in the top three for sure. And American the Howling Werewolf is definitely would probably be number three. You know. Okay, so the Howling and American Werewolf and yep. the Wolfman. So what about? So uh, now I'm interviewing you guys. What about <laughs> uh, since this is the vampire movie? Top three vampire movies. Oh God. Um, Spanish Dracula. Spanish Dracula. Actually, I can't say nope. that. I have not seen it. I hear, though, I've been told for years that it is superior to the Bela Lugosi one. I'm a huge fan of the of the Mexican Dracula film. I think it is it is far superior to the yeah. American one. No, uh, Lugosi vampire uh, Dracula, one hundred percent. Near Dark, absolutely, probably number two, very close number two, and. Um, uh, oh, uh, Twins of Evil. Ah, yeah, yep. Really, I, I love Twins Pretty of Evil. Is fucking great. You know what I love? Cut that. Um, I just saw at Berkeley Rep of all places. They did a stage version. Is the original Let the Right One In, Ooh. and they mm. just and and the American one, eh, not so much. But the, I haven't okay. seen that one. I've saw the, the original. original. I just I love it so much. I I I think because it's one of those things where uh, Near Dark did this well, where an and interview with a vampire, but it's not easy to do to have a kid play an old person, mm, yeah, effectively and believably is tough. And I feel like especially with uh, Let the Right One In, 
the fact that it's also this transgender ambiguous kid and there's all this just weird dark shit going on and it's so dark and i love the snowy you know backdrop of it all i don't know i'm just thinking out loud like let the right one in would probably have to be in my top three but i and maybe even near dark you know Funnily enough, a friend of mine um, is Josh Miller, who plays the kid oh, no in Near great. Dark. Yeah, so Josh and I are old friends. We got to know each other through his, uh, his uh, performance in Teen Witch. I've celebrated <laughs> Teen Witch many times, and so. But do you know that? Okay, this is how Hollywood. I, I now we're really deviating. How Hollywood mm-hmm. Josh Miller's family is. Do yes. you know his mm-hmm. mother? was the kidnapped woman, the girl, in Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. I did not know that, actually. Yes. And his father, yeah. of course, is the priest in yeah, is- The Exorcist. Yeah. yeah. His brother, of course, is in The Lost Boys. Yeah, it's all so connected. It, what a, it's all connected. <laughs> I never even thought about that. God, that family had two of their kids in the best 80s vampire films. Right? <laughs> I will say, though... What I think all of those things that we're talking, all these movies that we're just talking about now, what they all have in common is a confident director. Someone right. who's willing to just be like, this is the movie I am going to make. And I think that's what is lacking in Fright Night is he doesn't quite have that. Confidence. I think Tom Holland is a great film writer. These are His movies are so creative. He is bringing a lot of really new, fun, fresh ideas that I think draw from the classic horror that I, you know, I, I, I don't know about you, Peaches, but like our father loves sort of old Hollywood. And I, we were very, very, uh, uh, he, he would show us a lot mm-hmm. of old Hollywood films. And so we developed a lot, our love of film sort of rooted in old Hollywood. And so I still have a, a very strong affinity for that, that, uh, era. And you can see that Tom Holland is bringing this stuff in and, and it, that's what makes this movie fun, but he just didn't have the 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 focus and I think the confidence to say I am making this movie. We don't need to add a girlfriend to make it a teen date movie. Like we're just gonna make this cool ass movie and it's gonna be great. And I, I, I that's what I think. All these other things we're talking about, like these really clear visions, near dark. Uh, you know, let the right one in. These are all people who are like, I'm gonna make this movie. I've got this. Stand yeah, back. Everybody. Yeah. No, I can I can I can definitely get down with that. Being his first feature film, he probably didn't have the latitude to to be like, "This is the movie I'm making." So he probably had to cave to yep. a bit of the a bit of studio pressure. But you know, yeah, and you, I think you feel that in like. I could get that throughout. Like a lot of times when I'm watching stuff, it's like you you get you hit certain points in a movie and you're like, this feels like this was someone else's idea. Right. This feels like you're jamming this in here. Like, and it's usually, especially in something like this where there are such like overt queer moments. You get the feeling that someone was like, no, 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 no. You can't do that. He has to have a girlfriend. They have to have sex at the end of the movie. Yeah. Or like there has to be a big romance. And it's like, oh, Jesus mm. fucking Christ. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah. Th- I think those are all fair uh, uh, criticisms. And, and unfortunately, uh, for better or worse, uh, they exist in a lot of these Oh, well, yeah. a lot of movies, a lot of Hollywood movies constantly. Yeah, yeah. especially at yeah, this time. Yeah, exactly. Though. So I, I, I would agree with all of that. And um, yeah, and especially this sort of the, 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 I guess for me, you know, Chris Sarandon, they're all really, really good. But like there are certain yeah. standouts who kind of like show up and, and you know, I, I think Chris Sarandon is so good. And um, Stephen Jeffries is so unique. And and they really put this movie and this, those special effects. So like, despite those folks not liking them, 
you know, it just puts this movie in this sort of over, it, it sends it over the edge to it. It's like, okay, this is really good. Yeah. But without some of that stuff, it might not have succeeded. You know, it could yeah. have been forgettable and it's not because it adds up to being a really satisfying, fun movie. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I mean, the more I think about it, the more I'm like, and I really like the music, the soundtrack. I think Ooh, it's quite good. My God. You know? Both. Yeah. Both the score. Of the the, yeah. the Brad Fidel score is is super good, super eighties, yes, um, and like which I mean that's what he right. excels at too. I mean, look at you just go down his resume. It is like action movie he after had action movie. Just come movie. off of the Terminator to wow. do this yeah. one, yeah, yeah, which is a fucking killer, killer score. Yeah. And then, but then the soundtrack album, like the actual like licensed, you know tracks are fucking awesome there's you know that really funny like jay giles band theme song sparks are on it like it, it's it's so good yep yeah but uh yeah so here's here's a little here's, here's a few facts about the movie so the character peter vincent is named for peter cushing and vincent price love of my yeah, life vincent price. Price. and so holland wrote the part of peter vincent for vincent price but there's deferring stories about why he didn't take it one says that Price turned it down because he'd been so badly typecast over the years, but I find this very hard to believe. No, that's not true at all. It's Vincent Vincent Price. Price. I... I am a I am the the Vincent Price fan. That is that is T H E E Vincent Price fan. <laughs> he would never have done that. Vincent Price loved yeah. these movies. He loved these roles because he was a big hammy actor who loved going yeah. big, and he thought this stuff was super fun. He was he's one of those performers where you learn about him, and there was no pretense, there was no ego. Well, there's probably well, a little yeah. ego, but not a lot. And he just loved this stuff. Uh, the reality was he was quite old that's, at the time. Yeah, so that was, was, not that was my next is, is the reality of it is he was very old he, he, and his his health was in decline. Um, and yeah. so he wasn't really capable of doing much more than like cameos or like TV appearances at the time. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the stuff he's doing around this time, it's, you know, it's whales of August where like, you don't have right. to do uh, much. He's in the wraparound stuff from, from, uh, from a whisper to a scream. Uh, yeah. And, but anyways, after this movie, he's in monster club around this time. As no, well. monster club was a 1980, but yeah, so I, so I suppose. Yeah. But yeah, but anyways, he died eight years after this movie. Mm. So yeah. right before, I guess right after he did Edward Scissorhands because Edward that would have been shortly. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and just yeah, look, he did a lot of voice acting at this time too. It's uh, like real low maintenance. Stuff. But personally, I can't really see Vincent Price in the role because Roddy McDowell really does make this his own, his own. Because you have to, Roddy McDowell sells the idea that this is a washed up man, that this is a man with very little confidence. And Vincent Price is nothing if not overconfident. Yeah. Like every role he plays is big and present and wonderful. And you have to sell this as someone who really doesn't believe what he's doing anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's, that's part of the story yeah. is that like he, the shit he tries to do to save the day doesn't work because he doesn't believe in any of it. Right. And and I don't think Vincent Price sells that the way that Roddy McDowell really does. No, no. I love me some Planet of the Apes, but this is probably my favorite movie of his. Yeah. yeah. So there is also a. F- well, I, I'm going to say I, I'm going to I'm I'm batting for uh, uh, Poseidon Adventure. <laughs> okay. uh, I'm, yes. I, I love the Poseidon Adventure so much. Yeah. So uh, there is also a Fright Night video game that was published. I read about I want to play. That I want to play it, too. Published in 1988 for the Commodore Amiga, in which you play not Charlie Brewster, but Jerry Dandridge. Oh, um, 
reviews all say that it looks great, but playing the game actually sucks. <laughs> I did yep. not know there was a game. I did not know this until I, I did the until I did the research ah. for this. It's just hour after hour of eating apples and <laughs> stro- stroking your roommate's face. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, like most movies released in the 70s and 80s, there is a novelization which is long out of print by author John Skip, who had one month to write it from first draft to final, and I assume that there were not many drafts in between. Yeah, give it two months and one of these fucking companies will be reprinting it any day now. No, I know, but actually there was, there is another novelization that was actually written by Holland uh, in like the Mm -hmm. last 10 years or so. Uh, There was a remake in 2011, which I've been meaning to watch, but I've never gotten around to it. It Stars Anton Yelchin as Brewster, Christopher Mintz passes Ed, and Colin Farrell as Dandridge. Oh, and also David Tennant as uh, Peter Vincent. I'm told it's pretty decent. I haven't seen it either. I I I, yeah. I I mean, I'm not anti-remake because obviously some of the uh the things I love the most are re- actually remakes, but I am yeah. kind of baffled by sometimes remaking things that were so great already. Like where I'm like, okay, I don't need to see another poltergeist. You know, I don't yeah, need to like, see I think another child's play. Well, especially when they don't they don't do anything new to it. Like no. if you're just gonna give me a shot for shot remake, then yeah. I can just watch the original. Yeah, I I I think that one came out kind of at the at the tail end yeah. of that sort of remake fad mm. that was happening. And by that point, I was just like, I'm not interested in any remakes anyways. Why the fuck would I watch this? But then, like, people I knew who had seen it were like, no, it's it's actually, it's pretty good. You really? See it. So, yeah, so maybe one of these I mean, it's kind of a strong cast, but. Yeah. I mean, there's only so many hours in the day. Right. Know? Apparently, the vibe is way different. It's a much, like, darker, meaner movie. Uh, but I don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe I'll get around to it at some point. Um, and here's uh, lastly, there was an unofficial Mollywood remake called Kalpana House in 1989. I have not seen it, wow. but I'm told I'm told it's terrible. You can watch it on YouTube. Okay, it is, and and I probably will. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's it's it, it. From what I can tell, it is like beat for beat. It's the same movie, just made in uh, in India. Wow. Okay. Yep. So shall we get into it? Yeah. I know. Uh, certainly hope so. <laughs> I know. Here we go. So we open on a full moon and a pan around a neighborhood at night as a man and a woman talk as though they're in a vampire movie. And then as we pan up into the second floor room of a nearby house, we learn that it is a vampire movie playing on a TV. It's a Peter Vincent movie where he plays a vampire killer. And so meanwhile, on the floor nearby, Charlie and his girlfriend Amy make out. And it turns out that the movie is a part of something called Fright Night, the local TV horror movie show where Peter Vincent is the host. Why are they on the floor? I don't know. I do not know. Also, I mean, I, I think in the in the special features, they uh, I think Tom Holland says something about how, like, you know, his the the movie that they're watching is kind of a callback to the kind of B movie stuff of the drive-ins past mm-hmm. it feels to me a lot more dark shadows than anything else <laughs> yeah the way that I mean, they talk right to each to other fact is... that he's yeah he's got the the um stake facing the wrong direction like if you've ever watched dark shadows which i am a big fan of dark shadows they fuck up left and right in that <laughs> and it just feels dark shadows to me yeah I, w- I would be willing to bet that holland was very familiar with dark shadows because it was it, it's hard to understate like what a sensation that show was at the time 
Like our, our, like our mother was a fan of that show. <laughs> well, I, I'm a huge fan of it now. I'm going to get a uh, uh, Julia Hoffman tattoo soon. Oh, very wow. Nice. Yeah, I'm committed. I'm real committed. <laughs> um, Peaches, I think this is one of those moments, too, where you said, what, like, what are the parts that don't hold up? This is one of the ones where Charlie comes across looking real gross. Mm. Because, you know, he, uh, uh, Amy, Amy puts up, like, puts up a boundary of, like, you know, this is as far as she's willing to go. And he kind of jumps up and gives that, like, come on, we've been dating for blah, 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 however long. And it's like, dude, give it five minutes. And you're going to be obsessed with the man next door. So <laughs> I don't think you have a lot of room to be complaining here. Yeah, yeah uh, and I, I would agree that it felt, feels like inserted at the 11th hour, like thought the, the relationship was forced yep. at, at a late draft. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So Charlie wants to go further. Amy doesn't and stops him, but then she relents and then they su- it suggests that they take it to the bed. But as they do, Charlie notices two dudes next door, moving an elaborate coffin into the basement. And it completely distracts him from the girl on his bed, taking her shirt off. I- I'd say it's more coffin-ish than coffin. Right. When you see them, when you actually see the coffins a little bit later on in the movie, as they're sort of prepping the one that that she's supposed to occupy, they they like they you couldn't fit a child into these coffins. <laughs> no, I mean, it could be a coffin. It could be a sideboard. Who who am I to say? Honestly. Yeah. Also, when you say when the girl is is taking off her top in your bed, when that girl is Marcy from uh, Married with Children, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't want to comment on a lady's looks, but. <laughs> right yeah. so yeah the the two of them they're supposed to be teenagers uh and both of them were like well into their 20s while they were making this movie but yeah, they yeah she i think she's 27 yeah and i think he's like 21 22 yeah she's yeah but the, she looks she you know she looks apart she looks quite young so uh angry amy storms storms out and charlie chases her and then they talk briefly with his mom while charlie completely ignores her because he's too busy watching the new neighbors move in by moonlight what what's interesting about this set so the set where they're shooting this is the disney back lot and they're shooting on the same um lot that um something wicked this way comes oh, oh yeah where they shot that yeah yeah there's and, this thing is is this movie is supposed to take place in iowa but man it looks like a back lot in culver city right? <laughs> you know but I mean, it gives it that feeling of that. It, it, again, it lends itself to that sort of whimsy um, in, in the idea that like this is a very because, you know, it's a back lot. So it's not very big. I mean, it's big in terms of like, you know, where you're filming. But uh, it, it all feels very fake. It's sort of like when you watch Rear Window. Mm. Yeah. Or a lot of like and, Joe, Joe Dante's movies come across like yeah. this, like in the Burbs. The Burbs is it looks like a like a studio backlot neighborhood, you know? and it really like it really gives it that feeling of like this is small town America. And I, what I find really interesting about that idea is that it's still, even though this movie is a vampire movie and it it is playing, uh, it's playing kind of in a fun way. It still it brings that idea of. Uh, like what, what you get in Halloween where, you know, you get this kind of uh, menace comes into a small town and, and it's kind of faceless and it could be anybody. And it, it, even though he's he's trying to have a campy fun time at the same time, it is that feeling of like the evil comes out of the city because vampires until this point had been either castles or very urban. And now we get like vampire comes. It's, that's what feels again. It's that feeling of like, this is super eighties, that fear of like something dangerous is coming into suburbia. Look out everybody. 
And by everybody, we mean white people. Because <laughs> that's the thing is, at its heart, this movie is Dracula, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's this this exotic foreign. Well, is it though? Like you said, because you said that to me the other night, and I thought it's Dracula, but maybe Dracula as an afterthought. Uh, well, it's all of this. It's all of the Dracula stuff after the Jonathan Harker sections. So it's exotic foreign gentleman like moves into this kind of like unfamiliar setting and, and kind of becomes a, a sort of threat that, you know, like really everybody was trying to sort of escape, you know, cause that's really what the, the suburbs kind of represent, you know, in a lot of these movies. And also, well, I mean, especially when you say this is, we're talking about the queerness of this movie. This is 1985. So we're four years into the AIDS crisis. Right. I mean, at this point, the AIDS crisis is a full blown, you know, uh, uh, pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so you get that feeling of like, you know, if 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 what the suburbs represents is white flight and sort of wealthy white flight at that, then you get this feeling in the mid 80s of like, you know, everybody we, we ran to the suburbs to hide. And now here the gays are permeating the suburbs as well. Yeah. Like and, and you know, obviously, I don't think Tom Holland, if he did indeed know what he was doing, I don't think he was going to take it that far. But it is interesting to think. Oh, my God. Know. I think it's totally worth noting. And. I mean, for, as far as gay tropes go, not only were they wearing nice sweaters and they were two handsome <laughs> men, um, you know, in the 1985, people knew gay people. It wasn't like, you know, it was like the, the sexual, the, the the everything was in chaos because of AIDS, you know, but people at this point, you know, it's not the 50s. People knew gay people. People knew what gay people were. And they made these people antique stealers. And so I wonder, are, is, are they leaning into that idea of like, you know, the sort of gay stereotypes or is that a nod to Salem's lot? Oh. That could very well be. Well, there is he, is he an antique stealer? Cause somebody Aren't they says into like, antiques? Yes, he, fixes, he fixes up houses well, and he has a live in carpenter. They, I mean, they kind of frame, like she, the mother frames it as, I think she says he's an antique stealer. She does. Yeah. And then she says he has a live-in, but then she says he's probably gay. And it's like, girl, come on. <laughs> yeah. Probably. No, that, that, that's actually a point I hadn't really considered because this really is like Kurt Barlow. And I can't I can't remember his ghoul's name. Straker. Straker. That very much is that that sort of model. But based on the book and not the TV series because Barlow's a well, – I don't know. I mean, I think they do. Well, I mean, Barlow is a giant blue monster in the movie. Yeah. But – um, but I think the James Mason character is very, very queeny. But that's the th- interesting thing about these two characters is that they're so, you know, it, it, to say that, oh, we didn't mean for it to be queer. It's like you have cast these people and you have written these characters as the queeniest bitches <laughs> on the block. I mean, they, they are raising they're cocking an eyebrow and they are rating a bitch one after another. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, you can't say no. We, I had no idea. I was like, yes, you did. I know, I know. So the next day at school, Charlie fails a trigonometry quiz, and we meet his friend Ed, who Charlie calls evil. And I feel like there's a backstory to that that we never hear. And that I think that's the the biggest failing of this movie is their uh, their failure to really flesh these characters out because this relationship feels like it's central to the, mo- the, the whole story. Yeah. And then like we get this really beautiful moment later and it's like, that could have been so much bigger and so much more important. It's not though. Yeah. So uh, back at home, uh, he, he, Char- uh, Charlie gets home. He talks to his mom a bit about the new guy next door who is a live-in carpenter. 
His mom remarks, with my luck, he's probably gay. <laughs> Lady, you don't know the half. So, um, yeah, like we said, Stark and Sarandon were apparently completely oblivious to the subtext of their relationship until they actually saw the movie. And then Again, uh, I don't buy that. Uh, by night, Charlie does his homework and he hears a scream from the house next door. And so the next day at some sort of diner, Charlie. Oh, this is after we get we get the the play the Playboy playmate. Oh, that's right. Yeah, stepping out of the car where they they make her nipples erect for the film. <laughs> for fuck's sake, yeah, there there's a thing that doesn't hold <laughs> up. Well. Yeah, what we see is so yeah. There's a scene where where Charlie's getting getting home from school and there's this like sexy lady getting out of a cab and in a very ridiculous dress for Iowa. And uh, she, you know, he directs her to the house next door. And so the yeah, you know how you know how she you know she's a prostitute gold belt. <laughs> it's the Big, dad giveaway. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So the next day at this diner, Charlie and Amy make up, uh, but a television at the diner reports that the sexy lady that Charlie saw the day before was found dead, and this is the second body found in as many days. Once again, he's ignoring her in favor of the TV. Amy gets mad. Grabs some dude's burger, smashes it in Charlie's face, sending evil Ed. Wait, did, did you say diner? Yeah. Aren't they in like a cafeteria, like a high school it's cafeteria? Like a, it's like a diner, or maybe it's a cafeteria. I don't know. But I mean, it, I mean what's hey, school? I know it's been a while school, since you've been in high what school. What school but... cafeteria has a fucking television on playing the news? I always thought it was a Ho- diner, Hollywood. to be honest. I never thought it was a school cafeteria. I, really? Yeah. I thought it but, was... Okay. But it is filled with like teenagers, so I guess I could you could see yeah. it could be either really. Yeah. But, I don't think it matters. No, nah, just... nah, but but Charlie gets the burger in his face, sends Evil Ed into a fit of hysterics, to which he says, <laughs> oh, "Oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it." Which is like one of the like, it, it's probably the yeah. line of the movie. Yeah. So much so that they come back to it later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in an ill-advised moment. <laughs> I know. So back at home, Charlie tries to get a look at the new house, catches the eye of a live-in carpenter who's busy painting over the windows, and he intercepts Charlie as he's about to sneak into the basement and scares him off. This is another. So this movie is full of people making weird choices for actors making weird choices. Now, I'm not an actor. I, I I don't really know how any of that works, but I feel like there's a couple things that happened in this movie. This is one of them where he plays this character in such a strange way where he's like one part 80s bully villain. Yeah. One part actual menace, and it, I mean, it works for the most part, but it is such a weird vibe. Yeah, so this guy is, this is an actor named Jonathan Stark. I don't know if I've ever seen him in anything else, but. He was one of the groundlings, one of the original He's one of the original groundlings, yeah. Uh, so he's a comedian. But yeah. by, you know, like that's, that's his whole thing. And, and an improv comedian at that. Yeah, so. He, and I, I think that works to his credit. I mean, what he's, what, everything he does, it. It doesn't feel wrong. It just feels a little bit. I mean, maybe it's maybe that's a testament to his abilities that it just it is off putting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with. But that. at the same time, like I would say, he's maybe he's supposed to be off putting. He's yeah. The it's not really clear what sort of a creature he is because later on, and he, I think he, that's that's another one of these moments where you're like, okay, you you maybe had something else in mind for this character that it it just 
it doesn't work because you never really know who he is, what he is or why he's there. Yeah. He's just sort of there to fill a role. And that's one of those where it sort of falls off a little bit. Yeah. So that night, Charlie watches the house next door until he falls asleep. Then he wakes up in time to see a woman undressing in the house next door. And there's a dude about to bite her on the neck. And he appears to have fangs. And just as he's about to bite that neck, he looks up directly at Charlie, pulls the blinds down. He also has big, beautiful nails. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So now Charlie runs outside in time to see the carpenter appearing to load a body-sized bag into his Jeep from his hiding spot in the bushes. He's pretty well hidden, but then his mom comes out calling him, which attracts the attention of the carpenter and the vampire, takes a huge chomp out of the apple, throws it towards Charlie's hiding spot, indicating that he He does. He he takes a huge chomp, and the huge chomp is like through Through the the core of the apple. (laughs) Because he's a monster. He's got a big, big vampire mouth. So apparently, so, so, sir, this, this is like, I, I never really thought about this until I looked it up because I, I never really noticed it until it was pointed out to me. But Sarandon eats fruit throughout the movie because he read that most bats are frugivores. Meaning ah. they mostly eat fruit, and because he's half because he's a vampire and he can turn into a bat, it just makes sense that he eat fruit. Now, listen, I uh, you may have noticed just a minute ago I said I'm not an actor, uh, but uh, Christopher Sarandon is an actor, and I feel like maybe he's overthinking things a little <laughs> bit here. Yeah. So, so when girl, but, calm down. Before yeah. they went, before that, they actually went into into production on this. They, they had a couple of weeks where they they did like rehearsals for the for the movies. They blocked it. They did all their lines. And so when they actually got down to shooting it, it was a really quick process. But in the process of that sort of rehearsal, Holland had everybody like write like a background of their character. And at some point, he was like, "Oh, okay, so." You know, vampires, bats, bats eat fruit. Like, obviously, I'm going to eat fruit. And Holland was like, I fucking love that. Do that. And so they I actually I really like this idea that 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 Holland puts forth is like, I want you to go write a backstory for your character because I really feel like it makes them embody this character yeah, yeah. a lot more than they might otherwise do. Stephen Jeffries, most notably, is the one who didn't do it. Yeah. Refused to do it. Yeah. So, yeah. Um. Charlie then tries to explain to everybody that there's a vampire next door, as one does, including the cops, who he brings over to the house. We find out that the carpenter is a guy named Billy Cole, who's a roommate to Jerry Dandridge. And he also it was that is a roommate. Big old air quotes, yeah. a roommate. <laughs> yep. He also has a painting of a woman that looks a lot like Amy. I, that's another part where I'm like, this feels so fucking shoehorned in. Again, we're like, now we have this like, well, he has to, there has to be a reason why he wants Amy. Like, you wouldn't have to do this if you didn't fucking jam Amy in the movie in the first place. (laughs) Just make a movie about dudes. Yeah. Do what I want. So neither the cop or Billy take Charlie seriously, and they openly mock him. And I'm not going to lie, it's pretty funny. I, you know, this is like, this is, I think, one of the things that makes it feel so quintessentially 80s is that idea it's the Goonies, it's Monster Squad, it's all of those where it's like, it's kids versus problem. Mm-hmm. And the adults, in this in this sort of very uh, kind of peanutsian way, the adults are very non-present. Like, yeah, he has a mom and she's kind of in it a little bit. Oh, yeah. But, but not really. Th- some really fucked up shit happens to, like, his house and his possessions. Like, Jerry wrecks his car at a certain point and, like, throws him through the closet door yeah, and, shit. and beats the shit out of and him. His, and his mom is just like, hey, what's going on in here? 
But that like that feels very 80s to me of like it is the kids that have to solve the problem. Oh, yeah. I mean, they they it's one of the reasons why I think uh, Stranger Things really resonates yeah. with people of a certain age, because that kind of was what it was like in the 80s. This is obviously well, it is. an extreme I mean, it's, it's example. It's the emergence of and, and I think this is there's a market logic to all of this because it is that emergence of kids as consumers yeah. where it's like okay now we're pitching to children we're making movies for kids how do we do that how do we lure them in well you make them the star of the story when in reality we just want to see you fall down a hill and get hurt yeah. so that's what we want, we want kids, that's why we're we want kids falling yeah. down hey everybody here's what generation x wants we want to see you fall down a goddamn hill <laughs> i don't want to see you get hit by a car i just want to see you fall down but in the meantime, we're going to make movies where you're the hero. Yeah. And I, that that feels particularly 80s to me. Yeah, because it definitely it disappears as the yeah. 90s kind of dawns. It's a very, very strange thing. Well, I mean, it, it's a, I, again, there's, there's, a mar- there's a market logic to that as well. And that is that the kids who were going to the movies in the 80s are, are now going to the movies in the 90s, but they're not kids anymore. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, they still want to see themselves. They're just in their teens and 20s now. Yeah, I think it's important to remind folks that weren't Gen X and didn't grow up as kids in the 80s. Uh, yes, we were completely on our own. There was no adult supervision. So, you know, things like Stranger Things or Fright Night or these movies, you know, like E.T. is essentially a movie about don't trust the adults, you know. Um, oh, yeah. It, it, it's, 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 it, it was all very real. I mean, that's how we were. Yeah, boomers didn't raise us. They just sort of oh, told yeah. us to, you know, be home when the street lamp is on. Well, I actually ch- I challenged that a little bit, too, where it was like we all went out and played all that. It's like, mm, no, we didn't. We all sat in front of the fucking television just as much as anybody <laughs> else did. <laughs> yep. So Charlie goes to Evil Ed's house to tell him about the vampire. And he takes him about as seriously as the cop did. But he helps Charlie out anyway, and he runs down the rules for repelling vampires. It's all the usual stuff. Crosses, holy water, and garlic. The most powerful weapon of all is that a vampire can't enter his house uninviting. Okay, so here's what I will say about this particular part. I think, and this maybe speaks to Stephen Jeffrey's trajectory as an actor, is that we're, we're again, supposed to accept that they're very good friends, and that if if that were the case and if that were the narrative we were given then a lot of what happens would make sense otherwise the, he's a very close talker there's a lot of weird touching it's like i don't touch a lot of people that i'm not sleeping with and he's very kind of like very in his face a lot of touching a lot of grabbing and it's like all we know is that they're kind of associates from school yeah yeah. But now he's grabbing him, he's touching him. He's it's like it it just that contributes to that weird performance that that Stephen Jeffries gives. That's like what are what are you doing? Because these are strange choices you're making. The character as a whole is already very big and weird and you're making it even more weird and that would make sense if they were good friends. But we don't know that they are. Yeah. And so it's just like you're kind of just grabbing him and touching him. And being weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Charlie sets to securing his room, happy that the vampire can't just walk in uninvited. And then his mom calls him down to introduce him to the new neighbor who she has invited into the house. And this is where this is our first introduction to Jerry Dandridge, who is one sexy vampire. 
And he makes yeah. Yeah, he makes no mistake about letting Charlie know that he can now just waltz into his house anytime he wants. Also, Charlie's mom is crazy horny for Jerry. Which, again, weird choice for a person who's not going to be in the movie that much. <laughs> yeah. But who wouldn't be? I know. Yeah. Yep. I mean, I said early on, like, I thought... I thought this, that Chris Sarandon was gay based on this character because he's sexy as hell, rolls in, real elegant, real classy. I just assume he's gay. Yeah. So predictably, Jerry lets himself into Charlie's house. You can hear him walking around on the roof. And so Charlie sneaks around his house with his cross looking for Jerry, but he becomes convinced that the sound he heard was just some branches against the window. But Jerry is actually there and lets himself into the house through Charlie's mom's window before going to Charlie's room to wait for him. And now Charlie, thinking he's safe, relaxes, and that's when Jerry attacks. He roughs up Charlie, gives him a chance to get out of this alive, basically by just saying, like, forget about it. Uh, and and uh, Jerry Lee promises to leave him alone, but then Charlie tries to ward him off with a cross, and Jerry demonstrates his power by casually flicking the lock off the window and easily lifting the window, which has been nailed shut. Well, he actually says something I think is really interesting. Is he says, I'm going to give you something that I never had. Mm. And that is a choice. And it's it's such a uh, an interesting moment because it's like there, it gives you insight into more like depth of this character that we don't really get a little bit, maybe a little bit later on. But like there's that again, there's these these parts of the story where you're like, I feel like there's something that's supposed to be something more here that I'm not getting. But it's a great moment. It's very cool. Then he kicks the shit out of him. Oh yeah, yeah. he throws him. He throws him through the closet door and beats the beats crap out of him. They struggle. He he's got. I didn't. Does he? Does he smash? No, he lifts the window and he he's like basically dangling him out the window. And this is when he, which is a very threatening moment because he just the the nails are still hanging out of the window. Like they're still sticking through the the actual window part of the window. Mm-hmm. And the the pencil effect. So what ends up happening is he grabs a pencil off of his desk. He stabs Jerry in the hand, and then he you know pulls it back. And this is the, the thing is when he does it, he sp- Jerry spins away from him in this really strange way. Like this is a grievous injury for some reason. But what you see is he he looks at it. And he's got the he's got the pencil through his hand, and he does this thing where he like pulls this, the pencil out, and it appears to sort of like draw the thing out. And then he looks at the other side, and the pencil's gone. It's a super cool effect. Uh, that was apparently was inspired by a scene from Excalibur where Lancelot is run through by a sword. Um, so this is apparently enough to reveal Jerry's true form, which is a nasty ass vampire thing. And oh, he still looks pretty good. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, I've never been a big a uh, big fan of the like transformed kind of like monstrous animalistic vampire, yeah. like uh, like the Buffy the, the vampire. Buffy the Slayer. Yeah, like I'm not. I, like I get it. You kind of want to give him a look. But uh, I don't know. I just kind of I think that I think the fangs are enough. Yeah, for me, I agree. Quite frankly, I do like his I like him in his third form later on. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, he's, where he's kind of really monstrous looking. Yeah, I can. And yet st- still very charming. Yes. <laughs> yep. Yep. So, uh, yeah, the, the this attack is enough to wake uh, Charlie's mom up and scare Jerry away. He gradually transforms back and runs away. And she comes in and says uh, he tells her he had a you know, just had a nightmare, a nightmare that tra- fucking trashed his room. She says, do you want a Valium? <laughs> I caught that. Again, quintessentially is. Yep. Uh, so a few minutes later, Jerry calls him up to let him know that he trashed his car because you hear him doing something out, out in the yard after this this happens and that he's going to kill him too. And so Billy Cole, Jerry's ghoul or whatever, he 
cleans the wound on his hand very okay so this is where i think we can say tom holland may be full of shit a little bit yeah because this is the moment this is the moment where he's he uh billy kneels in front of him yeah. oh yeah, yeah yeah and it's and it's like it's very clear what he is intending for this to look like oh yeah it's a very From, it's a very te- you know, it's a very intimate moment it's very erotic uh, and then he, I mean, it, it, well, it also looks like he's blowing him, you know, yeah. from his perspective. And it's like, OK, if you can't say you didn't know that there was sort of like a, a queer undertone here where you're setting up a shot where it looks like this one dude's blowing the other guy. So uh, at the same time, Peter Vincent is on TV talking about how he believes in vampires. Charlie watches him kill a vampire in one of his movies. He gets really excited. The next day, he intercepts Peter on his way out of the studio, learning that Vincent was just fired from his gig at Fright Night because nobody wants to see vampires of the Hammer variety anymore. They only want masked madman, it seems. And so Peter at first thinks that Charlie is just a fan, but then he suddenly realizes that he's serious and he wants his help in killing Jerry Dandridge, uh, who does his be- and, and so he does his best to shake Charlie, who is acting like a crazy person. And so with nobody left to turn to... He asks Amy and Ed for help, and they arrive at his house to find his room covered in candles, garlic, and crosses as he sharpens a stake that he intends to drive into Jerry while he sleeps during the day, and they too think he's crazy, as they should. And so looking for help, they run to Peter Vincent, who's being evicted from his apartment. (laughs) That guy just can't catch a break. (laughs) So their plan is to bribe Peter Vincent to come up with them to perform this vampire test to prove that Jerry's not really a vampire, the plan is to have him drink holy water, which will just be regular old tap water. And so- I will say, I think the, the old age makeup on Roddy McDowell looks really good. The hair looks very powdered. The hair looks, te- the hair is terrible. They, the hair is not like, it looks like they're, they're just sort of dumping baby powder in his hair. I think everything else, like if, if you look at any old age makeup, uh, pretty much any time it kind of looks pretty shitty because it's a hard thing to recreate but i think on him it looks it's pretty realistic with the exception of the powdery hair yeah yeah, yeah. so uh yeah they arrive jerry dramatically descends the stairs in the main hall and he enthusiastically greets peter vincent and he is particularly taken by amy and she's taken with him as well and so jerry readily drinks the water proving to everyone that he's not a vampire but charlie isn't convinced of course there's some passive-aggressive threats toward Charlie, suggesting that Jerry will kill his friends, too. The clincher on the scene is that as they are about to leave, Peter Vincent produces a small mirror to check himself out on, and uh, in the process, notice that Jerry has no reflection. And this is that moment. This is the very Dracula moment, because this actually happens in Dracula. Yes, yeah, yeah. So Peter, and, and so Peter sucks at hiding his shock. He drops the mirror, which leaves a little piece on the floor, which Jerry finds. Uh, Peaches, are you a video game person at no, all? No, I mean, that's one thing I just, I don't know. You'd think I would be being such a Gen Xer, but I'm not. There's a, so there's a video game series called Fallout and, uh, uh, Roddy McDowell plays the president in one of them. Ah. And every time he speaks, it's all I can hear is, is president John Henry Eden from Fallout 3. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> funny. Because he just, he has such a distinctive Yeah. Voice. I mean, it's that sort of, uh. Yeah, well, it, it, same thing with just watching a uh, class of 1984. It's sort of like, oh yeah, yeah. there he is, you know, uh, Peter yeah. Vincent. Yeah, he's the uh, he's the robot Vincent. No, 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 yes, Vincent in the black hole. 
Mm. Also, yep. and it's the, just immediately the gay robot. The gay, Vincent, yeah. the gay robot. Oh my god! Who, who kills Maximilian with a dick drill? <laughs> well, that's yep. fierce. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. walking uh, Amy home. Yeah. Take that! Take that American horror story. <laughs> yeah. Someone else did it better. Surprise! Yeah. So, uh, walking Amy home. Evil Ed is still unconvinced. He disappears down an alley and he pretends to be bitten by a vampire. Now, pissed off, Charlie leaves him on his own in the alley. And it turns out that Jerry has been following him in a sweet leather overcoat. And uh, now cornered, Jerry takes the form of mist that vampires sometimes do. I fucking love that scene. This movie's got a lot of fog machine going on in it. To, yeah. To great effect. And I, I love a fog machine in just just in any movie. I want to get one for my house, to be honest. With I you. very nearly did um, at Spirit Halloween. <laughs> and and when I say by my house, I mean the three-room apartment I live in. <laughs> I think it'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm no. I I am lucky enough to have many, many, many fog machines because I uh well, I own a haunted attraction. So well, <laughs> brag, why don't you? So I'm I and I love the smell of fog. Whenever the actors complain about it, I'm like, go fuck yourself. I know it's got a very distinct it has a very distinct odor that I do I do love. Yeah. Yeah, that that distinct odor is community theater. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love it. I'm like, "Oh, the show's about to start." <laughs> yep. So, uh yeah, so he what he ends up doing is he offers Ed the gift of vampirism, which he accepts after a monologue about being different and no longer being picked on or singled out for being different. Yeah, this is one of those moments where it's like this would be a very powerful monologue if we re- understood uh, why it was that Ed felt so excluded and why it was that Ed felt so different. I mean, you you get the feeling that like yeah, he is uh, a bit of an outsider at school, uh, does not have friends, but you don't feel that. You never see it in action, and so it feels disconnected from the the intention of the scene also and it, but even like even separate from that like you you feel because there is sort of an inherent queerness to this i was character. gonna i was gonna say it kind of feels like jerry's saying one thing but meaning something else well and then because he follows it up by wrapping him in his arms and taking him in, in a weird i understand i think what what they're going for is a sort of bat wing yeah wrapping in the wing kind of vibe um but you, you don't really get that because you i don't know they never really deliver on that part of the story and so it feels a little empty so spooked charlie and amy run from jerry who magically appears at every turn and then they sneak into a crowded nightclub. Now, Evil Ed, meanwhile, gets himself invited into Peter Vincent's place, where he reveals to Peter that he's now a vampire and sets to attacking him. But Peter, who gets the best of Ed, when he presses a cross to his forehead, leaving behind a bad burn, which becomes kind of a, a big piece of sort of Evil Ed's character now. now repelled by Vincent's on-screen character, Ed leaps out the window. So back at the club, as Charlie tries to get in touch with Peter, Jerry lets himself into the club, draws Amy to him with his raw, hypnotic vampire sexiness. Things are about to get real sexy. Ooh, so sexy. And I feel like in this moment, so he is, uh, 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 Sarandon is sort of puffing up Amy's hair. And I thought, are they doing this in order to make it less obvious later when they give her a surprise wig? Uh, <laughs> is it, is it probably. A, is it a wig? 
No, oh, well, it's definitely a wig. Uh, the, 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 the sudden change in hair color and the long hair is like supposed to be part of her like vampiric transformation. I, I uh, they don't even like they don't even bother to try to preempt <laughs> any of this. They're just like, and then all of a sudden she has long hair. Enjoy. Yeah. And bigger boobs. They they molded fake rubber boobs yeah, for her okay. to wear. Here's the thing that I so here's another moment like revisiting these movies and watching. Uh, the special features because these movies were made at a time, uh, you know, their seventies and eighties when people who are now in their sixties and seventies were, you know, twenties and thirties. And to hear some of these guys be like, you know, and then she had, you know, uh, we had to have her take her boobs out. Ha ha. And I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ. I, yeah, I know. Do we have to do this? I know. There's a, there's a bit in it, in, in some of that stuff. There's basically on the, on the, Blu-ray that came out of this, there's a really awesome fucking documentary called You're So Cool, Brewster. It's three and a half hours long. Wow. Long. Really, really long. Really, I made it two hours into it and I was like, I don't I can't commit this that much of my life to this. <laughs> wow. No, I, I used it. I sourced a lot of from from this in it, and it's I had to do it in two sittings. But there's there's one part where she's got she's got the eye, the eye contacts in and she's got the mouth on and she keeps like bumping into shit and hitting her head and she according to one of the sort of special effects technicians she's like laughing it off because everybody's like ah ha ha and at a certain point he's like she was very clearly in peril and was like done with this so i went and just pulled the fucking appliance off of her it was like we're done here i think we got the shot and they're like uh. actually no we're not i need you to fix that so yeah there were people on this on the set who were like okay enough of this shit and I mean, I, I ran into this another time when we watched um, Halloween and I, I listened to the commentary and um, Dean Cundy is sort of consummate professional uh, DP and, and he just sort of talks about the, the making of the film. And the other two dudes, every now and then they're just like, oh, now here we get to see PJ Soul's boobs. And it's like, for fuck's sake, you're a man in your 60s. Right. Yeah. Just stop talking about that. I don't want to hear that. Yeah. And it's, it's just another reminder of like, yep, that's what they dealt with the whole time. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. unable to resist his domination, she heads out to the dance floor with him where his sexy moves place her fully under his power. And uh, at the same time, Charlie's on the phone imploring Peter to help him. Peter's too terrified to do anything. Charlie tries to break the spell that Jerry has over by throwing a punch, but Jerry handles him easily telling him to bring Peter to his house alone if he wants to save Amy. So now a couple of bouncers try to break up the action in the club and end up getting killed by Jerry, who goes half... You recognize one of those bouncers? S yes, but I don't know from where. Yeah, because that's Ali from Friday 3. Oh, really? yes. I never yep. put that together. It sh should have been in it more. Love that guy. Don't know why he only gets a cameo. Yeah. He he kills both of them going half vampire mode. And in the chaotic rush to get out of the club, Charlie and Amy are separated. Jerry is there to grab her and bail. So he runs to Peter's house to beg for help, but he finds him getting ready to leave town. Begs for Peter's help, but he's too scared to do anything. So Charlie goes to Jerry's house alone. Uh, but Jerry, in the meantime, puts on a little sexy music. And Amy wakes up to find herself on a furry rug in a very sexy dress. This is he, I feel, and I don't know if it's because we, in retrospect, we like we know that Amanda Bears is a lesbian. And, you know, if you grew up in the 80s and 90s, you watched her on uh, Married with Children. But, like, to try to sell her as a sexy character 
it's a little bit of a hard sell. Uh, I, you know, I'm going to tell you what, like it, the, there's, there is supposed to be, this whole thing is sort of like, she's like virginal and this is sort of her maturing, evolving, kind of becoming a woman, uh, that they're, they're trying to put it, they're trying to put across. It kind of works for me. Like I said, up to a point at a certain, at a certain point, it's, it, it just, she becomes a part of the action. I mean, I think what I said to Michael last night was she was literally a replacement for divine <laughs> on married with children. That's funny. I had no I idea. Mean, Wait, that's, that's not the role divine was supposed to play. Well, divine was supposed to be the neighbor divine. Yeah. And, and actually play a man. Which is, is yep. which was uh, interesting. They were going to have divine, and you know, and then of course divine died, right. and so they had to come up with something else. So they came up with this sort of Marcy Darcy. But I do, character. I do agree with you that all of it feel. Now that you say it, I I can't stop thinking. Oh my god, there was this sort of eleventh hour draft, and of course Tom Holland and people <laughs> are never going to admit that there was a closed meeting where they said this shit's too gay. You know, yeah. I, I, mean, I mean, that is no, exactly no what happened. You it's, know, it's kind of the there's, it's kind of the peril of doing this podcast is like we watch these movies in much like we 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 don't necessarily watch them so much as we examine them, and in the process of that, we come to certain conclusions that, like honestly, we can really only speculate about. But that speculation makes a lot of sense when put in its proper context, and like we're just we're seeing it here where it's. On its own, as a casual watch, this movie fucking rules. But when you really get into it and look at it at this sort of level of detail, it's like certain parts come across as very clunky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think also, and and, you know, we'll get to this at the the conclusion of the episode, but the the thing is, you know, uh, we were all there. We grew up then. It's like, it's not like we didn't know that this was a homophobic time. Like, you know, or, you know, or misogynistic time. Like, it's not like this is a big surprise. And so I'm still able to look at this and say, yeah, I'm guessing this probably went before either, um, you know, a sort of test audience or before studio executives. And they were like, no, 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 we can't have this faggot shit in our movie. You have to prove that, that, you know, by the end of the movie, this has a heteronormative conclusion. I'm sure like, heteronormativity was shoved in our fucking faces every day. It's why we, we have so much internalized homophobia is because we were told it's okay. If you're the, the queer best friend who dies tragically, it's not okay. If you're the star of the story, that's why, like I watch this stuff now and I'm like, yeah, of course that's the way it was. Like, I'm not, I'm not deluded. It's not like, Oh my God, this is a revelation, but it, it is still interesting to be like, I can still like these movies, even though I know that's the way it was. I know that's the way it was because I was there. Yeah, it, we were all there. In, like in this movie, like I think we all agree, it succeeds despite it, and it's yeah. still likable. And I think part of that's just what all the actors bring. And I think Tom Holland, uh, you know, was very, very competent and a good filmmaker. But these parts of it do feel like someone yeah. said. You know, you got to get this into the script and, um, yeah. you know, and and I agree. I mean, and it, what would be interesting is to know if they even, you know, cast Amanda and there was a draft that was less, you know, obnoxious and they were like, nope, we need more. Nope, we need more. Yeah, we, we need, need we need her more. In yeah, face. we need to. She needs to be sexier. Yeah, all of that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And that, I think that's that the difference between a movie that is sort of didactic in telling you 
you know, gay is bad. Right. Because God knows there's plenty of those. I mean, that is the bulk of the movies that involve sort of homosexual themes throughout the 80s. This movie doesn't do that. It doesn't, it's sort of neutral on what, you know, how you're supposed to feel. Yeah. It's not going to tell you. No, it's not sleepaway camp. It. You know, it's not like, <laughs> like where the entire premise hinges on, you know, the discovery of, you know, these gay fathers and, you know, uh, uh, repressed, right. you know, uh, uh, a forced trans kid. You know, like that movie is the 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 piece de resistance but we know that that movie is in some ways a ridiculous example of of something that existed in more subtle ways in all movies you know for better or worse but i think that also might be a little bit to its detriment in this case because Uh, you do get that feeling that like this is somebody else's idea right this is someone else coming in and saying no 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 you have to make it this way you have to tone this down and and again there's that lack of vision where the director says okay fine i'll do that and it compromises the story in a certain way yeah i think it's why the evil ed character feels so undercooked is because there were probably versions of this movie that existed on page that had way 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 more of him but as the amy character was introduced it showed she just kind of like that that character sort of shoulders out all of that that sort of Charlie and Ed stuff, which is why there's this kind of vaguely implied relationship between those two characters that seems to be a relic of an earlier version of the movie. Yeah. You know, and I mean, I, I, and Tom Holland has said as much. I mean, that there is his original draft of this was Peter Vincent, Charlie, and Ed. That was the three characters. Yeah. And so when they introduce this other character, they have to scale somebody back. And, you know, probably because the character of Peter Vincent was written for a larger star. Well, then who gets cut back? It's the sort of tertiary character. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so again, under his power, Amy gives herself over to desire and Jerry bites her on the neck in the movie's replacement for a sex scene. And I mean, this is the part of the story that I'm like, I kind of lose a little bit of interest where I'm like, I don't fucking care about this. <laughs> Either give me monsters, give me, you know, teens trying to kill the vampire or like this weird, like she's my long lost love. First of all, it is literally a, a, a plot line lifted from Dark Shadows. And it's also like, I it, I don't care. This is boring and stupid. Yeah. Oh, but you're about to get vampires and monsters and shit. Because yeah. we, we are turning the corner into the... Into yeah, they the, take us there. Yeah, in the third act. So yeah, um, convinced that he's going to have to face Jerry alone. Charlie goes to Jerry's house, but he runs into Peter, who has changed his mind, gotten tough, and intends to d- destroy Jerry like a real vampire hunter. He also brings a massive box containing all of his vampire hunter props. Once inside, they find Jerry waiting for them. And Peter produces a cross, addressing him like a movie vampire, uh, rolling his R's, to which Jerry laughs. Wait, did you skip over the whole uh, evil Ed death scene? No, that's coming up. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so uh, Jerry, he crushes the cross and he says that you have to have faith in the cross for that trick to work. Which, again, is, an I think, a nod to Salem's lot. Uh Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he's he's about to kill Peter when Charlie Ford uh, charges forward with a cross of his own. But this one works and it drives Jerry back. And uh, Charlie declares, we're going to make it just in time for Billy Cole to slide into the scene and knock him over the railing. So Peter once again flees, leaving Billy on his own. But he runs next door to get Jerry's uh, Charlie's mom, finding the phone lines cut. 
up in a room. He thinks he finds her in bed asleep, but it's really evil Ed wearing a red. In one of the weirdest <laughs> moments of 80s anything. Yes. A, a red yarn wig like Raggedy Ann. It's like, a, uh, yeah, like it's, is it, it's, I guess it's sort of drag. But like it just looks like a mop the head. Worst like drag. Yeah, the worst <laughs> drag they could have pulled off. Yeah. That's just like real lazy Halloween. It's like, drag. It's like, yeah, it's like drag on 10 bucks at Spirit Halloween, you know? Yeah. So, and so yeah, he he demands to know where his mother is, and Ed informs her that she's working nights and mm, oh, she <laughs> left a note. <laughs> it seems his dinner is in the oven. <laughs> <laughs> Which is my favorite part of the entire movie. Yeah, and we, that has always been my favorite. We part. have been doing that at each other yep. for like thirty years. <laughs> yeah, and that's why we're here tonight discussing yeah. this podcast, discussing this movie. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, they struggle a little bit. Peter's not. And I mean, he he looks great too. He looks like a fucking mess in this scene. Like, oh, it's yeah. not just the wig is stupid, but like the makeup in this part is really yeah. really cool because so, he looks gnarly. Yeah, because like Jerry has the sort of monster form, but he has these like grades of a vampire where sometimes he's just got fangs, and other times he looks like an animal. But like Evil Ed looks like a fucking monster, and he's like deteriorating over yeah. the course of the film. Mm. And so, yeah, they struggle. He, they get, uh, he gets knocked. Peter gets knocked out into the hallway. And now Ed emerges from the bedroom in a fucking awesome scene because he's now a wolf with red glowing eyes. And he char- And th- I think this is where that we the sort of weirdness in tone comes in, because, like, you know, we have this moment where he pops up on the bed. He's got the kind of yarn wig on. It's really comical. And then it sort of it transitions nicely into something uh, that is a little bit weird and a little bit menacing, but then it goes full on menacing, and it's like I, the the transition doesn't quite work. Uh, I mean, I suppose I I don't I don't. The scene is cool as hell. I'm not, I'm not I would not negate that, but like it just feels a little bit weird to move from the goofy raggedy and wig to an actual monster is like okay, it's a hard turn. It is a breakneck change of pace for sure, yeah. <laughs> but. He charges at Peter, who manages to run him through with a broken piece of the railing. He falls, you know, down to the to the bottom floor. And so dying, the wolf This is an 18-hour makeup. I know. I cannot How imagine. How do you even do that? I would go insane if I had He to... had to sleep in the chair. Yeah, yeah that is so, nightmarish. Yeah. He he gradually transforms back into Ed while Peter watches. And it's a really touching moment because like Ed is dying. He has this kind of moment where it's like, this has been all for naught. And at the same time, Peter Vincent is like, holy shit, I can actually do this. But seeing it in the, but also there's a teenage boy dying dying in front of him. him. And he's like pleading wordlessly pleading with him. Like it's, it's a fucking amazing moment. It's probably what it's probably the best scene in the entire movie. Like dramatically speaking. Oh, I think it hands down. And because he conveys, you know, Stephen Jeffries conveys so much just with his face and under layers upon layers of makeup. And I, you know, I think when you contextualize it too, sort of in retrospect, you have these sort of, you know, two gay men doing this death scene 
1985, when you know the the images of gay men that you saw in 1985 were just harrowing and absolutely heartbreaking. You know, just look at the fucking Nan Golding photographs from that period. And like, I feel like it's it's hard to not think of that when you see this beautiful moment when it's like you have this older man who wants to help, realizes that this isn't what he thought it was going to be. And then you have a younger man who also realizes it's not what he thought it was going to be. It's just a very touching moment. Mm-hmm. And this is that this is that scene where it's like if if we had had a build up to this, if they had really let us have that relationship between either Charlie and Ed or you know all three of them, this really would have been a remarkable moment in in not just in horror film, I think just in film in general. But because it goes through so many iterations and so many revisions, we're just sort of left with this moment that is still beautiful, but feels a little bit flat. It could have been better. I, I, I agree. But I still, it is a remarkable moment in the entire movie. It's, yeah. it's just so, so great. I mean, it's deeply affecting no matter, no matter what they do, because I think the acting in this moment is really top notch. Yeah. So up to this point, the special effects have been pretty light with a couple of like mild tricks. But from here on out, things are going to get effects heavy and I fucking love it. Yeah, you get the feeling they saved their money for this. Yeah, so most of the crew in this movie was fresh off of Ghostbusters. And some of them worked with Rick Baker and Rob Bottin on their respective werewolf movies. So there's this... Yeah, some some of the effects are literally fresh off of Ghostbusters. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but there's, there's a one-upsmanship to Fright Night where they want to do all of that transformation stuff in much greater detail. And also, these were the early days of special effects contact lenses. Oh, and so and there's a lot of contact lenses on the vampires at the end here. This shit sounds rough. I cannot. I mean, literally and figuratively. I cannot imagine. So these are literally hard plastic shells. So, so you know, it, maybe you're familiar with them. But nowadays, like, special effects contact lenses are like the ones that people have been putting in their eyes since, you know, contact lenses began. They're, they're soft. They're pliable. They're reasonably comfortable to wear. At so I guess for anyone who doesn't know, and I, I have worn glasses but most of my life, if you put contacts in, you literally have to take the thing, uh, get it on the tip of your finger, put it into your eye. You have to touch your eye, yep. basically. Yeah. And back in the 80s, this was, they were made of hard plastic. Hard plastic shells that are placed over the eye and under the lids. And so they would paint onto the lens whatever color or you know, thick detail this was supposed to show. And in the case of Amanda Bierce, they painted them but forgot to sand down the other side that touches the eye. Yeah. So she puts these hard, hard lenses into her eye and it still has like flecks of whatever on the other side scratching Ugh. her eye. Yeah. Yep. You can only. And they're all just like, whoops. Yeah. They can only. Oh, the, oh shit. There is a moment with uh, the dying werewolf scene where they have, they have the, they, they, you know, it's all drooly and drippy and shit. And what they use for that, that saliva effect is something called methyl cellulose. It's a, like a thicker. Oh God. And what they did when they were doing with Jeffries in the dying werewolf scene is they were pouring this stuff on the eyes and in the mouth and shit as he's dying. And then he's inside the thing, freaking out going like, what the fuck is this? This tastes terrible. And they're like, spoiler alert. It's glue. They were putting like the prosthetic glue in when they thought it was the methyl cellulose. And it like, it like it glued his mouth half shut. And the only reason that it didn't all get up in his eyes and stuff is because they were pouring it on the glass eye section of, of the wolf. 
good god i cannot fucking that's like the fucking wild west yeah uh, also it's there's like when they made creep show and like the the fluffy puppet like ripped off uh tom savini's hand <laughs> there's 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 parts in in that documentary of some of the the effects guys also getting like really badly hurt with with uh contact with noxious chemicals and like solvents and stuff like that acids that burned them like the effect the jerry dandridge death scene at the end sounds dangerous as fuck and i'll I'll get to that when we get there you just probably i mean comparing this all to the way movies are made today or the way that i mean i hate to say it but like just the way that younger people are um you just would uh never get away with it i just read this thing about this this background actor suing um the, the the producers of Maxine, including including Ty West and Mia Goth, because oh. of because of the you know the the when you read the complaint in the lawsuit, you're kind of like, I mean, I'm, I'm going to get canceled for saying this, but you're kind of <laughs> like you're just a fucking whiner, you know? Like horror movies are hard, you know? Like the, yeah. like yeah. apparently Mia Goth kicked him or something, and it's like. I mean, and that the blood, you know, was sticky and, and and hard to get off his body. And I'm just like, maybe I should reread it. Maybe I, I have a feeling your <laughs> listeners are going to be like, Peaches you know, Christ is a know, fucking monster. But part you know, of me it, is kind of like, are you kidding? Like me, making I movies know. is hard, you know? It's, I mean, I don't honestly, I don't think you're wrong. And, and I'm about to get, I'm about to be right there next to you. But like. I work on a show that is highly criticized a lot of times. Like I, I write for a true crime show. Ah, okay. And in, and so there's a, you know, it's, there's a, it's a precarious position, but like in this age of social media where people are so quick to just be like, well, how dare you? And it's like, do you realize that Boris Karloff would get like thrown down the fucking stairs day after day? And it's not okay that that happened, but at the same time, it's like, Hey man, this is fucking punk rock. What we're doing? We're making horror movies. Yeah, and there's something about that cachet. And I, you know, I don't want to advocate for like bad working conditions, but there is something about like, you know, just suck it up a little bit. Like you're doing a real cool fucking thing that nobody else gets to do. Like a handful of people get to do. Yeah. I'm sorry if your feelings got hurt or if you like you you know you you sprained an ankle, but like. I mean, having I made a horror movie myself with practic- a lot of practical effects, um, I'll say that the actors and what you're describing in Fright Night is like a lot of people just don't give them the credit they deserve. Poor Mink Stoll in my movie, uh, you know, had to have her mouth sewn shut, you know, um, and wear a prosthetic. The, the mouth sewing shut was actually stressful enough because to, to get it correct, we actually just had Natasha Leone stick a needle through Mink's lips where it was like a uh, fraction of a, if if Natasha had hit the wrong mark slightly, uh, it would have pierced her actual skin. So you could imagine me watching the monitor, you know, and oh and God. thinking, I mean, we don't want you know Hall Hell to break loose on the set. And Mink doesn't suffer fools, you know, like she's been put through the ringer. She did not want her lip to be pierced. But despite that, which we we succeeded in doing that. Then we have two sets, two days where she has to sit on an attic floor with a prosthetic piece, you know, on her mouth. Um, So she can't talk. She can't eat. She can't drink water. You know, like actors go through hell to make these movies. Yeah. Let's name that movie because All About Evil is a hell of a movie. Oh, thank you. Thank you. But but, available from Severin Films on Blu ray today. That's right. (laughs) Or if you get Shudder, you can watch it there. So. 
No, stop it. Stop that. <laughs> Make them go buy the DVD. Oh, yeah, yeah. Go buy the Blu-ray. Go buy the Blu-ray. But sometimes, I will say this, for collectors, it's good to have it streaming because they'll watch it and then decide, oh, I need to own that, you know. Yeah. Yeah, no, but to get to, to the point of, like, the shit that people go through to make these movies, like I certainly appreciate that. I understand why visual effects are so prevalent today because they're cheap and it's easy and you don't have to clean up a blood spill constantly in between takes. If you don't get it on the first shot, like it's, it, it, it's, it's a fucking matter of like insurance. I'm sure also, but like, I certainly appreciate a good, like a dangerous stunt or, um, like a really elaborate physical effect because there's a there's a craftsmanship to it there's a skill to it and there's a like a a, a tangibility and a physicality to it that like these you know the, the way that they're doing it now does not have and it doesn't thrill me in the same way so like I, and I, well i think that's a, that's a really interesting and good point is like we're you know this isn't just about a badge of honor for doing something reckless this is about you know people trying to really push the boundaries with such limited budgets i mean these movies had no money mm-hmm. ever yeah and so you had people coming in like let's be as fucking creative as possible now it was a little bit reckless and sometimes a lot bit reckless but like this was not just people being like, you know, whatever. I don't give a shit about this woman. Sometimes that did happen, you know, Friday the 13th part four, but mm-hmm. there, for the most part, like this is people really trying to stretch the limits of their craft and doing cool shit. And that is what horror was really kind of all about in the eighties was like, it wasn't just that these were fun and fantastical stories that that was what they were, but it was that we saw new things and exciting things. And those things were not easy to do. And they were a little bit dangerous and that made them even cooler. And those people should really be honored for what they did and what they went through. Yeah. I mean, this isn't just like some weird outsider art where someone would nail themselves to a fucking car hood. Like, they were doing this for our entertainment because it was something that they really loved and believed in. <laughs> I don't think that excuses a lot of the shit that happened, but I don't want it to always be dismissed. It's just like, these were reckless men, you know, uh, sort of trifling with the lives of women. Like it just, I don't know. I think it gets dismissed too easily. Yeah. And I think we're at a point now where it's just like, well, just do it with CGI. And we're learning like, well, CGI doesn't do the same. Ah, mm-hmm. no. uh, so back to the movie. <laughs> Jerry now has Charlie captive, leaves him in the room with Amy, who quivers on the floor in the white dress. He leaves him with a wooden stake, and after he leaves, Charlie discovers that Amy has been turned into a vampire. So, back at Charlie's house, Peter then retrieves the broken railing from Ed's dead body, and now, empowered with his ability to actually kill a vampire, heads over to Jerry's house, which is literally pouring fog. <laughs> And he, he charges into the house and he finds Charlie. See, that's what I want my apartment to do. Dude, <laughs> the way that the that the fog is like just rolling down off the top of the house and the way that it's lit from the top, it looks so cool. And so, yeah, I'm going to do that. Even though I'm connected to my neighbor's house in both directions, I'm just going to do it to my house. So he charges into the house. He finds Charlie there. And if they can kill Jerry before dawn, they can save Amy. So now they're confronted on the steps by Billy Peter shoots in the head. But this isn't enough to stop Billy, who suddenly sits up like Michael Myers at the end of Halloween. I think this is a cool death. Like, this is a great death scene. I love it. I mean, I think it speaks to the idea that, like, you never really knew what this character was. Nobody in this movie knew what the point of Billy was or what he is. But it's a real cool death scene. It's super gross. 
because uh, yeah, so he, he struggles with Peter in a moment of vulnerability. Charlie runs him through with the board, and Jerry uh, that that Jerry left him with to kill Amy, and then Billy like he melts. And, and also he's got like a, he's got a contact in that like after he gets shot, like his eyeball, like one eyeball turned hard to the left or something. Yeah. It's such a cool looking thing, but all of a sudden he's, he's pouring slime. Like you can't do that on television. Just running out the bottom of his pants. And he, and he, it's, it's almost like the Nazis at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where he kind of like is reduced to a skeleton that just like falls down the steps and just bursts into like a cloud of bones. It's a really great. In what is a kind of a goofy shot because they all the bones all kind of go tumbling down the <laughs> stairs. Yeah, in the very 1950s way that I think is fantastic. Yeah, it's great. Uh, so now Amy is now worse, almost fully vamped out. Her hair is now long and red for some reason. And Jerry, meanwhile, calls to her to awaken from the rooftop, commanding her to kill Peter and Charlie. Uh, so back at the top of the steps, though, Jerry leaps through the window. And Peter, uh, he produces the cross, which works this time, which stops Jerry, who is now stuck between the rising sun and the sign of the cross, which makes me wonder, did Peter Vincent find God in this moment? <laughs> Was this a rhythm? I don't think anybody. I feel like at this point, they're just like, just wrap this shit up, everybody. <laughs> we blew through our eight million dollars. Let's, let's call it a day. Yeah. Uh, ch- so to escape, Jerry turns into a bat and he attacks Peter drags him into the sunlight and it causes Jerry to flee to the basement. And so now in, in all of this, so this ending is very, uh, what was, what year was vamp? Was that 84? Six. Mm. So it was the next, okay. it was the next year. Cause I feel like, I, I feel like vamp, the ending yep. of vamp is very reminiscent. Very similar where like they kind of like, they break that part and there comes the sun and then they break that part and here comes the sun and now they're trapped between the beams of the light. Yeah, it's I, very I just, kind of video game ish where they're dodging the uh, bursts of sunlight. Yep. So, uh, yeah. Um, Charlie is uh, in the basement and he's confronted by Amy, uh, who sort of confronts him with his weakness and his inability to save her. And uh, vulnerable, totally fallen for it. She turns to attack Charlie now with that gigantic shark's mouth. (laughs) And so. And I mean, I so I mean, we're watching this in 4K. It looks a little goofy. I still think it looks really cool. I still think it looks great. I think it's 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 one of the cooler effects in the it's, movie. It's that it's that wide giant grin that is so off putting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a statement and it, too. And I've noticed it's like been sort of uh, used symbolically, like in well, being in the haunted attraction industry, I've seen a lot of masks and things that mimic that look. They're not necessarily Fright Night, but they're that crazy giant mouth, mm-hmm. you know? And it's a fabulous, it was a fabulous new monster look. Yeah. 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 It's very cool. Yeah, I love I love it to death. Also, it, it seems to be on a hinge because like it moves a little bit. And I'm it's every time I look at it, it's like, where is her actual jaw in this? Because like when it opens, it opens very wide. So it's a yeah, it's a very it's a very cool. Uh, the prosthetic is really cool because it, it is blended so well that it doesn't feel like, uh, you know, faces when you add that much shit to them can look a little puffy. Mm-hmm. And this doesn't. This looks like it is a very it's very well integrated into her face. It's, it's you know, the teeth look a little. Meh, yeah, they're, they're, they're all snagged. The rest of it is real cool. Yeah. Yeah. So Peter, meanwhile, he finds the hidden compartment where Jerry keeps his coffin, he finds him sleeping there, scarred by the sun. Peter attempts to stake him, but Jerry is able to resist him. He, he does that thing like in uh, Nosferatu where Count Orlock like rises up like on a hinge on his feet. 
And he throws the stake, which breaks one of the basement windows, letting the little sun in. So then Charlie takes to breaking all the windows, trapping Jerry, and ultimately setting fire to him. And so this effect is that super dangerous one that I was talking about before. So what they did was they placed over, uh, especially essentially a, a leftover dummy from Ghostbusters that didn't get used. And they put like flash paper with the, with the printed image of Jerry's like vampire face over it. And then they soaked the model in glycerin and nitric acid. And then pumped That's it. never going anywhere good. No, and then they pumped it full of sulfuric acid, which turns it into nitroglycerin. And so it combusts on contact. Which yeah, is, so they made a bomb. They made a Jerry Dandridge bomb. Yeah, yeah, which is why it has that sort of like eruption of green flame and then he's like consumed. But it's such a cool fucking effect because it ultimately consumes the entire model. Like the entire model is reduced to smoke. Like there's yeah, well, it sounds like they almost consumed the entire Disney backlot in Green's Flame, too. Yeah, but it's, it's a fucking hell of an effect. So now with Jerry dead and gone, reduced to literally nothing, Amy is saved and Jerry's house is back on the market. Boo, uh, Amy. <laughs> so, Boo, heteronormativity. <laughs> so, sometime later at Charlie's house, he's making out with Amy in his room. Well, Fright Night plays on TV. Peter addresses Charlie directly and introduces an alien stalks the campground slasher movie, which is actually the movie Octoman, which is fucking terrible, but it's worth a watch. So what I what I like about this moment, I, I hate the whole heteronormativity thing. I, again, that feels shoehorned in. What I do kind of like is that throughout one of the underlying themes of this is that. Uh, it's that idea that these uh, older movies are still relevant today. These older uh, themes and these older stories are still relevant today. And by saying we're not going to do this, we're going to do this sort of newer style. It's blending those two things together. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's like that is a nice conclusion to your idea that you can have these new 80s sort of hot new stories and still have these relevant characters and relevant themes. And then they just kind of fucking blow it at the end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Charlie goes to Chester. Just end on that. I know. Leave they, it there. They could have. Apparently, originally in this scene, the original scripted ending was Peter Vincent, like, was bitten at some point, turned into a vampire, and he vamps out on TV, to which producers were like, you can't fucking do that. Which It's also the end of the howling, so. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's true. But yeah, what what he does is he goes to Charlie goes to shut the TV off and he gets his uh, he spots a a pair of red eyes for a second in Jerry's former residence. And then they blink and we hear evil Ed say, oh, you're so cool, Brewster. (laughs) We fade to black, play that Jay Giles band theme song. We roll credits. God damn damn it. Fright night. Well, all right. Uh, so, uh, Peaches, as I've alluded to several times, we revisit these movies to see how they still hold up today. And so I'm going to ask you first. We have talked a lot about uh, this movie over the last 17 hours we've been talking. <laughs> how, do, <laughs> how do you feel that Fright Night works today in 2024? I, like I said, recently screened it for an audience, but I, I I think part of why I like it so much is that it has less cringe than a lot of these nostalgia films yeah. do. Um, and in, in, in that way, I, I really appreciate it. I think because of the post um, uh, sort of release 
uh, awareness around people like Amanda Bierce and Stephen Jeffries. It has more of a queer celebration than it ever intended to, you know, because we've got Roddy McDowell, we've got Stephen, we've got Amanda, and then we've got a queer, you know, subtext running through the whole film. Um, so I think it's quite good. But I, I honestly, Dave, you've you've sold me on your criticisms. I think they're all fair and valid and. I agree that, um, you know, we're, we're sort of having to overlook some of the poor, basically script decisions more than anything, you know? Yeah. 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 No, I, I agree. Like in spite of the fact, like we've been, we've been very critical of it uh, in, in sort of like really sorting it out and finding the weak spots in it. But as, as a movie itself, I love it to death. You know, this this kind of like examination of it did nothing to sort of dissuade the notion that like this is a this is an all time favorite of mine. And I, I love it to death. I agree. It is. There's a thing about like I, I really don't like falling for like naked nostalgia, but there is a quality to this that kind of reminds me of a very brief time in my childhood when a thing like Fright Night was uh was actually like a thing like we didn't have a horror host in our in our town we but we did have like a, a monster movie show on saturday afternoons and that was a major vector for discovering horror it was all yeah. you know schlocky 50s stuff but without a, i think it was a huge influence on both of us yeah like, like without undeniable. without the creature double feature like i'm i'm not this person that i am today you know so like it, it really does kind of remind me of that and sort of i don't know it feels like just out of reach, like some part of me wishes that I could sort of recreate something like that. But this, this movie is as close as I get to it. And uh, you know, it's, it's, it's full of really great characters. It's got great performances. I, I do love the story to death. I don't know. I can't like, apart from just like these, these very valid criticisms, I still, I feel like it's, it's, it definitely stands on its own and it's not diminished in any, in any way for me. Uh, I can, yeah, uh, I, I would. I I agree with all of that. I think, I think that it, you know, narratively there are problems, uh, and I think that in terms of consistency and, and coherence, there's some meddling that I'm sure comes from the outside. But the the tone of the movie is is one of fun and sort of whimsy, and it is a it is something that appreciates the past while still trying to be relevant in the present. Uh, and I think now, especially now that we know of, you know, the, the Amanda Bears and Stephen Jeffries and Rodney McDowell, like all the queer influence and the fact that it is being um, embraced again for those qualities and the fact that everybody else that worked on the movie can look at it and say, hey, that's cool. I'm super happy. Like the fact that Tom Holland is just like, well, I didn't intend it, liar. But <laughs> the fact that he's just sort of like. That's great too. It's like, you know what? That makes it feel good to me. Like it feels good now that some, you know, it's not like uh, uh nightmare Two, where he's like, well, I certainly didn't mean to do that. It's like, fuck you. Mm -hmm. Like you get the feeling that it's just like the, you know, when, when Tom Holland says, I'm so glad that people still love it and still find new things about it. And like that, I think that is the sign of a, of a movie that lasts that when you, we, you know, we watched uh black Christmas and Halloween recently. And it's like, Every time I watch these movies, I find new things. That's the sign of something that is really has lasting quality. And, you know, I don't I would not put this movie against either of those two. But, it, you know, the fact that we can still watch it today and people can still find relevance in it, still find things to love and, and discover new things. And that the people who made it say, well, I didn't mean it for that, but I'm so glad you found it. And that's fantastic. That makes it all the better. And I, I think that, you know, yeah, it's a little clumsy. You know, it stumbles here and there. 
there's some bits and pieces that maybe don't hold up so great, but it the the tone of it and everything underlying it is just so wonderful. It's and I I think it still works. Yeah. Well, that I I, I agree with both of you. <laughs> All right, Peaches Christ. Thank you so much mm. for joining us. This is a Absolutely. this is this has been great. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for having. Uh, me. You are very very busy, and uh, I would like you to tell everybody listening where they can find you. And what you're up to. Well, I'm on all the social media, although I did get off um, X when um, Mr. Musk, <laughs> just I couldn't take it anymore. Not that Zuckerberg is much better, but like Elon just, just was too much for me. So I'm, I'm off that. But I'm on Instagram and Facebook and uh, uh, TikTok now. Um, so yeah, uh, peacheschrist.com is where you can find me. The biggest thing I have coming up right now is um, Mink Stoll and I are going to go out and do our two person cabaret show in um, San Francisco, New York, uh, Salem, Massachusetts, Providence, Rhode mm-hmm. Island, uh, well, Philadelphia, to to that. and Washington, D.C. So if you want dates and uh, tickets, they're all up at peacheschrist.com. All right. All right. Dave, what are we doing next? Mm. Well, this here show, Bring Me the Axe, we will be back in two weeks with a little film called X-Ray that I have discovered only but a year ago. It blew my goddamn mind <laughs> apart into a million pieces. And uh, I, uh, we're going to be back. We're going to be talking with some other guests about it. I'm very excited about them. Please find it. It is on Tubi. It is the weirdest, wildest horror movie I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, but before then, we will be back in one week with a 99 Set Rental. Where we're talking about Phantom of the Paradise, another movie I love. Yes, this is going to be great. It's going to be a lot of fun. I cannot wait. So, Oh, and I, that reminds me. I should have mentioned I also have a podcast called the Midnight Mass, <laughs> Midnight Mass Podcast. So if you love these kinds of podcasts, you can check out our podcast. Your Phantom of the Paradise plug reminded me because we've done that movie as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to say it right up. I'm going to say it right now. I am a person who does not like a lot of things. I do not have a lot of tolerance for bullshit. And I will say Midnight Mass podcast with Peaches Christ. Michael Verratti is one of my favorites. Oh, thank you. So yeah, do not that. miss it. If you if you never heard of it, look it up. Find it. It is fantastic. Yeah, thank you. All right. All right. Thanks for having me. Bro!